Audio conversation with Peter Robbins recorded Friday, November 30th, 2012. Peter has been immersed in this subject, the challenging and very strange subject of UFOs, um, mostly because of a direct experience he shared with his sister when he was a young boy. He experienced a close-up sighting of a silvery disc hovering above his yard in uh, the suburbs of Long Island, uh, along with his sister, who was a little bit older than him. Uh, Well over a decade later, he confronted his sister about that date. Uh, She said something to the effect of, I've been waiting years for you to ask that question, and they began a dialogue on what uh, might have happened that afternoon. Uh, After a lot of research using hypnosis with both himself and his sister, uh, a story emerged where um, she was abducted and he stood frozen and watched the the, uh, the abduction process take place. There's a missing time component to this story uh, and what emerged is uh, what is all too familiar uh, would be the uh, classic UFO abduction phenomenon. Uh, Peter also wrote a book uh, called Left at Eastgate. His co-author was Larry Warren. It is an in-depth exploration of the events of Rendlesham, which took place in December of 1980. He has also studied Wilhelm Reich, which I think is very interesting. We touch on that in this in this interview. Now, the interview might be the wrong term. It's more or less a conversation. Uh, over the years, Peter and I uh, have uh, we both realized that we have a fascination and love of uh, movies, and there are a handful of movies that uh, are in a way dear to my heart and also play a pivotal role in in the public perception of the overall UFO phenomena. Uh, those movies would include, here, check my notes here, um, from 1951, The Day the Earth Stood Still. We, we discussed that in depth uh, from 1953, Invaders from Mars, uh, and from 1956, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. You know, we don't really go much beyond these movies. We get kind of, I don't want to say stuck on them, but they they certainly, uh, those three movies sort of create the framework of most of our discussion. Uh, The rambles all over the place. Uh, We also talk about Intruders, which was a 1992 made-for-TV movie starring Richard Crenna, uh, where the actor, in essence, plays uh, a hybrid of sorts uh, 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 between Bud Hopkins and Dr. John Mack. And, and Peter was an excellent resource for this just because he was so intimate with the, the workings of Bud and had befriended John Mack um, early on in his investigation of the overall UFO abduction phenomenon. Uh, this is a long conversation. It rambles all over the map. Uh, it's a l- well over two hours long. Uh, I would no need to um, dwell on any sort of introduction. And, uh, and we jump right into it. Please enjoy. Hello, Peter. Good afternoon, sir. Well, morning for you. Okay, I've got my big Yeti microphone all set up. Oh, gosh, you're, so you're totally... Uh... Oh, I'm a professional. Okay, you know, did, is this because of the, uh, what is it, the thing with Chase Konkoleski yes, or whatever? Yes, exactly, exactly. And, yeah. and then Race or Rob or Royce or whatever <laughs> sent you Race, uh, yes, and Mac and sometimes Rich Dolan and hopefully Nick Redfern uh, in future. This is Mike. I am chiming in during the editing process. Uh, we are making reference, Peter and I, to not only his brand new microphone, but uh, he is co-hosting 
a monthly series on the Global Radio Alliance with uh, Chase Kletsky. I think I called her Konkoleski, and that's actually the name of a MUFON director out of Michigan. Uh, that's his. That's a that's a separate story, and I should actually make a point to interview him someday. So uh, the hosts of this uh, audio program once a month encounters with some mix of Chase Kletsky, Nick Redfern, Mac Maloney, uh, Richard Dolan, who I've interviewed here, and and then Peter Robbins. Uh, the, the microphone, it's funny, I've actually heard a number of folks, I've talked to a number of folks who are involved with the Global Radio Alliance, and they all have this, the day that the big new fancy pants microphone shows up at their house and they all get real excited. I, I know Richard has spoken about it as well as uh, a woman who I suspect you'll be hearing on this show someday named Suzanne Chancellor. Their contact at, at the, the Global Radio Alliance outfit is, uh, you know, I get these two guys confused. One guy's name is Race, one guy's name is Royce. Uh, and uh, the, those two are in partner and sort of oversee the, the, the mothership, as it were, of this uh, online radio outfit. Okay, enough about this. Back to the interview. Um, but I do so much radio at this point and that it just seemed like the right thing to do. And it's such an amazing tool. And I know um, whenever I, I'm on the air now um, working from home, it, it certainly uh, helps make uh, you know me sound as good as I can. Yeah, oh, here, this, you sound great. That What I've been using, and I have not found anything better, is a $19 headset that I got from, from uh, uh, Radio Shack. Terrific. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, uh... <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I've just been looking forward to doing this with you, of course. And I think um, for you and I, the main um, uh, point to keep in mind is let's have fun as though we're sitting at a bar and having it on our own. And, you know, there's an audience of people that we're going to share it with. Uh, because it's something that really is special to both of us. And it's also an opportunity for me that I really appreciate your giving me because of our shared interest in this to just that, share uh, my interest in the fact that I'm a film maniac and um, it's my UFO work is something that I'm best known for, for a lot of folks, but it's certainly not the end all in my life. And uh, in this case, of course, we're going to be talking about some uh, filmatic projects that um, are, you know, do tend to cross over or are just wonderful entertainments, um, science fiction wise, which reminds me a very cool thing. Um, it always has interested me that overall there is almost a total disconnect among sci-fi fans, which is a huge international audience and serious UFO studies, they, generally speaking, fall into line with the public at large and figure this is nonsense. Science fiction is fun, but UFOs as reality is, is you know, the kind of musings of deluded, mystically minded people who are looking for a new pantheon of God. Science fiction is great. And... I have never, ever been invited to take part, for that reason, I think, in any science fiction-related event. Well, it turns out that next weekend, there is a weekend-long Philip K. Dick, um, Philip K. Dick um, Science Fiction Film Festival going on in New York City. Oh, my word. Yeah. And um, my, um, I can't really call him a friend, although we're friendly, 
a very good film um, documentary guy named James Carmen. James Carmen, I know James, yes. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, I met him um, a little over a year ago at the premiere screening of his UFO documentary, The Hidden Hand. And we've been in a regular touch ever since. And a month or so ago, he got in touch with me to say that he had been invited by the director of this film festival to screen this feature-length UFO documentary. And that um, the idea was to get some dialogue together between the huge audience of Philip K. Dick fans, uh, representative of sci-fi fans all over the world, and some serious thoughts about UFOs and how they might dovetail into this area of fandom. And he said, we want you to come to New York to be part of a panel discussion following the film that will be you me and him and some sci-fi writers so i am going to be speaking next saturday at this film festival they're using venues in manhattan and brooklyn and i'll be at the one in williamsburg um as part of this panel after screening of this film and isn't that cool yes i have seen the film in a very rough draft ah. and that was um you were actually there you may have been sitting outside the theater this mm. in, in, at your desk this would have been at the um the mm-hmm. 2008 october uh culture of contact event that took place in that that oh, funny old gosh. movie theater in oh, jersey gosh. city yes and uh, jeremy's thing yeah then the the um yeah, and James Carmen uh, did a had a very rough draft of it. There was yeah, some issues right. with the, you know, there was just sections where there was no music, and I'm quite certain that over the last what is this now four years he's yeah. been oh, yeah. editing and re-editing and re-editing this thing, and and I know he presented it last year, uh, at the, um, I think that's right. Was it last year at the? Uh, at it the, was um, last October, and it was done on a Friday night. Uh, as kind of a setup for a day-long UFO symposium, conference, whatever you want to call it, which was so surprising to me because the speakers were Linda Howe, Rich Dolan, and Whitley Strieber. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and so I went to that all-day event the following day, but it was a great way to start the event, and by the time he screened it there, it was, it's done. It's in the can, it's very professional, and... It's going to be so interesting to take part in this discussion. So there you go. Okay, so here's my little take on this where, you know, you said as much before, but what I usually find is that uh, when I do these audio interviews, people will have their kind of um, their formal interview hat on. You know what I mean? They'll talk in very clear, you know, you can almost hear the the, the tenor of their voice will be very formal. And um, we'll get to the end of the interview and uh, I'll say goodbye, and then I'll kind of quickly say, ooh, ooh, don't hang up. And then we'll talk for another 10 minutes or so, yeah. which is very common. And yeah. what happens is in that final 10 minutes, there you is a – You get some great stuff. Oh, well, not even the great stuff, but that tone vanishes, yeah. right? So all oh. of a sudden some sort of guard goes down, and then the, the person well, is much more you know, sort of jocular and open. So You're um, talking to me, and I absolutely understand what you're saying and consider the guard down and the jocularity ready. To go. Okay, good. So I was, I was um, <laughs> great. Um, so first things first, um, pop culture. Uh, there is a play, a theatrical play. Uh, presently, it's only on paper, is my understanding, uh, and the title will be Left at Eastgate. Um, that is correct. And so I got to hear about this. What's up? I've only seen little hints of it on Facebook. That's right. It's um, being undertaken by a um, young playwright 
who is also a, a, a trained actor, who is also um, an up-and-coming UFO writer. And his name is Ryan Sprague. He's written uh, a number of articles that have been published in Open Minds. Um, he kind of befriended me at first sort of as a fan, and we have become friends. He's a good young guy. Um, when he told me after reading uh, Left at Eastgate and then I think rereading Left at Eastgate and then getting into it again, that he wanted to write a stage play, not so much about the book plot and what everything that transpires uh, in the book, but about Larry and I undertaking this project and our relationship. And um, I thought, geez, number one, um, I'm always concerned that if anybody, you know, does something for the public realm about our view on this, it can always be done in a second rate way. Um, and I can't stop it. It's in the public realm now. And we are public people. And um, I thought, you know, I, I like this guy. He seems to have his head screwed on right. And um, I'm actively assisting him in any way that I can. Uh, we met last time and I was in the city. I'll see him again on the next trip in in a week or so. And I think he, he really is earnest. I know he is very serious about wanting to write something for the stage, which, as you know, is a first love of mine, um, along with film. And um, uh, I don't know much more about it than you do right now, except that he is working on it. And um, I look forward to assisting him in doing the best job that he can with it. Interesting. Okay, fascinating. Any, anyone in mind for your, to play your part on Broadway? <laughs> well, I, I don't know if it's going to shoot right to Broadway. Oh, come on. Uh, what a downer. I know, I know. Well, I thought, gee, I mean, if they're willing to do some stage work rather than, you know, their Hollywood situations, I thought the obvious choices, of course, are either George Clooney or Brad Pitt for Larry and me. So, okay, yeah, so George Clooney and Brad Pitt, are they're confirmed? Is that what you said? I, I didn't well, quite <laughs> Well, they don't do theater that I'm aware of. But if they did, I thought, you know, Clooney is me, um, uh, Brad as Larry. I mean, they're kind of ringers for us, you got to admit. People confuse us with them all the time. Yeah. And, um, yeah, major, major Broadway uh, uh, serious production. And then, of course, the musical version. Oh, that's that was just about to say. I, did, I just assumed that it would have been a, in a, a musical. Uh, no, I think you're thinking of um, uh, the producers, possibly. Um, so, which... so is this? Is there going? So it's basically. So it would then there would never have to be like an on stage recreation of you know people walking through a a, a, you know, a forest with blue beams being shot down from above the trees. No, uh, and I'm not sure if Charles Halt will end up as a character in this treatment. Again, I'm going out of my way to not influence Ryan. This is his project. Um, I'm I'm flattered and moved that he wants to focus in and do a serious stage treatment of the human dynamic between Larry and I. Um, I'm sure that over the next months there will probably be um, some modest staged readings as it develops, um, I'm certainly going to be at everyone that I can. Um, and you know what? Um, who knows where it will end up? 
it would be wonderful if even as an off, off, off Broadway kind of thing, it, it has an opportunity to have something of a run. Um, I know uh, Ryan is very talented and um, he's a great guy and um, I know we're going to be hearing more from him, ironically, both in the world of ufological journalism and film and legit theater. So um, this is you spoke to me at one point about attending the uh, Roswell um, annual event and they did a staged production uh, I cannot remember the title of it, oh, but it would have been yes. a recreation of, you know, in, in essence, a uh, of the of the Roswell events, and including an actor who played Truman. Is that correct? Well, not only is that correct, but you're talking about a play, um, a full-length feature play, that was written by the extremely talented and highly credentialed uh, playwright Marty Martin, uh, longtime resident of New York, who now lives well outside of the city. Uh, who has had a hand in quite a number of serious productions and had some world-class film and stage actors work in his productions. And um, that was pretty special. It was performed several times in Roswell. I think it's a play that that should have a Broadway uh, run. And who knows, maybe at some point in the future it will. Uh, Marty is an extremely talented and very experienced uh, playwright and uh, remains a very good friend, although I haven't seen him in some time. We do stay in touch. Um, but that was a, a terrific production, absolutely terrific. And um, the audience, I think, was absolutely knocked out by it. Um, the title that he has for it, as I recall, is MJ-12. Okay. Yeah, and is set back and forth between Roswell, New Mexico and its outskirts and Washington, D.C. and does have many of the major actual historic players involved in Washington and in New Mexico as characters, obviously because you can't get inside their heads or know exactly what they were thinking or saying to each other. Um, this is an artist uh, in terms of this playwright's interpretation, um, treatment of the summer of 1947. But I'll tell you what, I watched it straight through twice, and I thought it was sensational, absolutely terrific. Now, now, if I remember correctly, you said the culmination of the play involves uh, uh, Truman in conversation with what would be like an alien emissary, am I remembering that correctly? If I'm remembering it correctly, um, yes, I believe that is. Um, I mean, I just think that would uh, be a wonderful that it piece ends of, on. Yeah, that would be a fun the piece of dialogue of the to United write. United States facing off with um, a being, another intelligence from parts unknown, yes. Yeah. Again, that is Marty's interpretation, Marty's treatment. Uh, this is a piece of theater based on historical fact. And um, in fact, uh, Ryan, uh, who uh, is writing this play about Larry and I, it's his freedom to take whatever license he wants um, dealing with us. I, I know that he is relying on me to some degree, um, and if I absolutely objected to something, I, I expect that he would respect that. Um, but you know what? It's his play, and um I'm just along as a consultant and a very interested party 
because there's going to be an actor playing me. And that character is going to be based on me. But, you know, it's it's this particular playwright's interpretation. Again, I'm just really excited that someone is undertaking a treatment of what I consider a really important relationship in my life with a very complex dynamic and a very real human story arc that is now basically representing 25 years of my life uh, in terms of my friendship um, and working relationship with Larry Warren, somebody I consider a true hero, and that's with a capital H, uh, who has been treated awfully uh, in great part by the world at large for having had the courage to come forward and set something in motion that embarrassed a lot of powerful people and that a, a lot of people feel the necessity to weigh in on and have an opinion on, even if their opinion is based on some very uh, poor information uh, and a certain amount of bias or attitude um, and human ego. Um, it's a complex story, and I salute anybody that wants to do justice to it. So we'll see how it shakes down. And I'll personally, of course, keep you posted on how it develops from my point of view. But Ryan has done something that I think is pretty special, which is weigh in on Facebook and establish a separate page for this, Rendlesham. Um, and to a degree, as a working theater artist, he's going to keep us all up on how this project develops and at whatever point um, there are going to be you know scheduled public readings of this in whatever form it is uh, I think it's great that he's inviting people to come and watch so all good and more power to this guy uh, again for anybody that is a subscriber to um, the terrific magazine Open Minds um, he has several published articles in there and he's a good writer so is is Larry involved in the production also in the same capacity Larry, you are? Larry absolutely has his blessings. Um, they have been communicating to a degree, degree through me, but they both have each other's you know contact information and are uh, certainly I, I think they've been back and forth a bit on Facebook. But um, yeah, Larry, like me, wishes him the best, and we'll see what happens. Great. Hey, yeah. so so I don't know where this, you know, whatever. We talked movies on and off for, for you know, it seems like I bump into you every year or so. Um, and we get to talk face-to-face, and often the subject turns to movies. Uh, and the, there's a, the, so like the 1950s was very early on in the overall, what we call the modern phenomenon. I, I mean, I guess that everyone seems to trace that right back in, to the Kenneth Arnold sighting, and there was a, uh, three major events that took place in the summer of 1947. One of them was the Kenneth Arnold sighting, one of them was the Roswell event, and the other one would have been, oh, what's the one that took place in, in Seattle on the on the water? Cory Island. Yes, the Cory, yeah, thanks, thank you. Yes, the yeah. Cory, the Maury Island event. So, yes, so three um, initially highly publicized events uh, the Roswell event, um, you know, very quickly got swept under the rug and kind of got lost in the, in the, um, uh, you know, the narrative of 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 modern UFO history until it reemerged in 1980 with the publication of of uh, the the Berlitz book, 
Um, who, uh, yes. And who is the co-author of that? You're good at this kind of is you. Um, yeah. Um, oh Charles gosh. Berlitz and I could look it up, but um, so that book. Uh, yeah, hold it one second while I lean away and look at my bookshelf. Oh yes, William L. Moore. Oh, okay, Bill Moore, and then and then uh, that was published in uh, I, and actually nineteen eighty. Yes, the I year of uh, ironically the year of the Rendlesham Forest incident, but that really marks the beginning of the now numerous books on on the Roswell event. Exactly, and um, so so yes, yeah, so that so the what if, in essence the Roswell event evaporated from the public scene and then reemerged in nineteen eighty. So it had almost a uh, what is that like um, thirty five year. Hiatus. <laughs> yeah, hiatus there. Yeah, or actually more than that, 40-year hiatus. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Actually, 30, 33 years, yeah. So it had been yep. 33 years, yeah. So 33, the mystical number emerges there. <laughs> um, yeah, so, but now early on in the overall uh, popular, well, not popular, so the public presence of the UFO phenomena uh, emerged a movie in 1951, which yeah, when I look back at it is very, very early in the, in the, in this, in this, Oh, you know, well, the, the, the public consciousness. 1950s B-movie science fiction genre. Yeah, and it's well, yeah, a film that made a real impression on both of us. Yeah, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Mm. Yeah, and that, that, so 1951, actually, if you look back at the, uh, you know, the data, and I'm, I'm uh, basing this somewhat on what Bruce Rux says, and Bruce Rux is an mm. author who put out a book yes. called uh, Hollywood versus the Alien. But you know, that's so, a great book for anybody that's interested in the whole history of UFO films, uh, science fiction films involving UFOs, etc. Um, it for me, it's it's the best book ever written, and the most extensive one on the subject. Well, it's certainly the most extensive one, um, and, and quite honestly, there are very few books that have ever tackled that. Uh, there's an That's author, right. Robbie Graham, who is uh, in England. He's getting his doctorate. And curiously enough, when you uh, he he proposed for his for his doctorate, uh, you know the the theme of UFOs in Hollywood. And that was accepted at a at the university that he's at over in the UK. Um, so he is also working on a book, um, you know, with very similar themes to Bruce's Rux's book. But the, I guess my point was that uh, the day the Earth stood still, if you trace backwards previously to that, there really are no. Uh, there is a very few. Let me put it that way. There's there's very few actual UFO movies that that sort of grade B. Uh, you know, drive-in movie theater genre that that um, that took place well after Day the Earth Stood Still. Well, you're absolutely um, right, Mike. Um, the precursors for me, uh, one that made a cheerful impression on me as a child, because although it was made as a series for uh, uh, you know feature films um, in the 1930s, the great um, uh, not Buck Rogers, but um, Flash Gordon? Um, yeah, exactly. Flash Gordon, uh, starring Larry Buster Crabb, who was noticed and got a film career in a funny way, uh, much the way Johnny Weissmuller did, who uh, was the uh, first really best-known uh, Tarzan of the apes, as a gold medal winner at the Olympics. Um, uh, Buster Crabb um, had movie star good looks. Wavy blonde hair was a um, kind of the Mark Spitz of his time, so to say, uh, won his gold in swimming. And this is a very wonderfully 
innocent, goofy, loopy sort of group of space travelers who um, move through the planetoids. And um, Buck is the handsome, um, rugged one. Um, and he travels with a very attractive female assistant, a young little wise guy, and a scientist, Dr. Zarkov, which immediately the little beard and the foreign name kind of set the tone for um, the great Sam Jaffe, who many people know uh, as Gunga Din from that great movie from 1939. But in fact, that idea of presenting a Russian name and a goatee is the brainiac um, Einstein character. And I have a memory from childhood just how silly this was. But there was an interest in, you know, other worlds and all of the aliens, so to say, that they met were very humanoid, uh, often different colored skin and outlandish outfits. But they land on a planet and the spaceships, if you look at them closely, even in these old kinescopes and things, you can pretty much see the string on the spaceship. And you got smoke coming out of them. I think they burned coal and it lands on the planet. And the trap door, I think the kid opens the trap door and Dr. Zarkov says something to the effect of, are you crazy? We don't know what the atmosphere is. Who knows? We could die. Everybody step back, step back. And Zarkov steps to the door and takes a big sniff and he goes, oxygen, it's all right. And even as a kid, I went, what the hell? Come on, <laughs> come on. But yes, the, the Day the Earth Stood Still was directed by the great Robert Wise, who not only directed the first Star Trek film, which took science fiction genre to a new level, he was Orson Welles' film editor on Citizen Kane. This was a great filmmaker. Yes, and he actually... Budget, he made a great film. Yeah, he actually was also um, when the uh, the studio thought the ending of of uh, the Magnificent Ambersons was such a downer. Mm -hmm. They 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 uh, I'm not sure what what contract uh, Wells signed, but the the God, the yeah the studio forced a uh, a new ending to be filmed. Yeah. Uh, and then um, Wells wanted nothing to do with it, yes. and um, so that that new ending was filmed by uh, by Robert Wise, and it broke Wells' heart. That is one of the great flawed masterpieces of American filmmaking. Uh, I think that uh, studio executives were so overwhelmed by Wells's brilliance and the fact that he turned in Citizen Kane at twenty four years old. There is this nasty bit of human nature to crush genius, uh, as in Amadeus, that thing of um, mediocrity is something we can all relate to. But genius is intimidating, especially for those with mediocre minds. And um, it is a, a favorite film of mine, although one that um, there's an almost, I don't know, um, a very sad undertone for me because you know that the real genius of the film was suppressed and that it was recut to fall into line with, with studio films at the time with a more conventional story arc and an ending that would play better for, you know, the average American audience in the minds of the people that controlled the studio budgets. But yeah, um, Robert Wise gave us Oh, he gave us the Andromeda Strain, which is yeah, which is oh, perhaps man. the most important. Uh, I mean, that movie. Watching the Andromeda Strain Why now. So here's another movie about aliens. Yeah, yeah, it's and then terrifying. Yeah, that movie plays. Watching that one now, it it is every it it has not aged a 
you know, at all. It is no, absolutely fact, engrossing. Anything, and, it has become almost more um, of the moment because that threat of um, a plague, biological warfare, the fact that right now so many millions of people around the world who get a simple infection cannot find an antibiotic that will be responsive because we have so overused antibiotics in our culture. No, it's a very scary film. And for me, what Wise does in The Day the Earth Stood Still is he takes that collective unconscious conscious fear of the unknown, which many people uh, certainly allegorically pin to uh, upset about the Cold War and where it was going to lead us. And the fact is it's often played as a complete allegory for Cold War fears, much as the invasion of the body snatchers does. He gives us an alien presence that is thoughtful, intelligent, um, has a concern for humanity. Oh, boy, if only the aliens had the presence of the great British actor Michael Rennie. I, I thought that was certainly a bit of class. And the brilliant Patricia Neal as the love interest and the human being of interest here. Also, um, the great character actress who played Aunt B on the Andy Griffith show as sort of a frightened conservative in Washington and a, a pantheon of great, often uncredited character actors. But what he does is elevate this idea of a flying saucer. And let's remember at this point, the phenomena is in the American consciousness and the world consciousness for four years now. And it lands on a baseball field across the street from the White House. Uh, also, it addresses a question that comes up so often about, well, if they're here, why don't they just identify themselves? He steps out of his craft unarmed, is surrounded by a phalanx of, you know, soldiers in World War II issue uniforms with their M1s who aim their deadly weapons at him in a circle, which is never a good idea. <laughs> and he produces a small device from his pocket about the size of a pen, clicks it, and these little, you know, sort of hooks come out of it, and he's shot and taken to Walter Reed Hospital. Uh, of course, we then learned that this was a gift for the President of the United States to allow him to communicate, uh, etc. Um, I, I think it was actually to cure cancer. No, no. I, I, I bet you a quarter that it is uh, a device that was for the President to allow him to communicate with his leader on his planet. Okay, you're probably right. Okay. <laughs> and when, of course, he learns that he's going to be held indefinitely at Walter Reed for observation and that he can't be allowed to go out and meet human beings as he would like, he simply just does it and disappears into Washington, creating a wave of terror of the unknown spaceman who is among us. It is such a brilliant, thoughtful script on so many levels, and one that still plays, for me, as fresh as the day it was written. I'm not a fan of remakes overall, and I would uh, advise people to steer away from remakes of, of films like this. Um, you know, uh, at the same time, uh, a lot of people like the remake and more power to them. Not my cup of tea. Yeah, no, the remake was, I was just, yeah, I can't even go there. But um, yeah, so the day that Earth stood still, so there's a bunch of things going on there. So one of the things that like the, the oh, the sort of flippant remark that any any skeptic or debunker would say is, you know, like, why don't they land in the White House lawn? And in essence, that movie, you know, uh, within four years of, 
of the dawn of the modern UFO age, you know, presents that as as the you know the core of the entire story. I, it was actually I can't remember. There's the name of the park that that it, it landed in, yeah. in um, on the baseball field there near you know in downtown Washington D.C. I can't remember what it is offhand, but um, so there, so you have that presented as like a you know as a cinematic reality. Uh, and was, the fact is, um, you know, in plain, blunt terms, the reason you're not going to land across the street from the White House and come out and identify yourself and say, take me to your leader, is because you're going to get your ass shot off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whatever. So, yeah, so they, there'd be, you know, th- yes, that's why they had to land at uh, Edwards Air Force Base and talk to uh, President uh, Eisenhower, which is actually uh, so a confirmed fact. Is that right? That's that no. actually. Wait a minute. It's not? People talk about it. I read it on the Internet. <laughs> I sat in a lecture at a UFO conference, and a guy, you know, showed pictures on a on a screen of like. I know, I know. I saw a reference to it in a documentary. How could it not be so? And of course, the battle for Dulcie Underground, where we lost two hundred and fifty-seven servicemen in their battle with the aliens defending their cryogenic tubes with the fetuses growing in That's them, and not all real That's either. So anyway, so yeah, the, the the story. I actually I like the story. I think it's a wonderful oh, yeah. story of, of Eisenhower meeting the aliens and then absolutely, you know, and then making Did it the exchange. Happen? Absolutely, maybe. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> that's story. A yeah, yeah. I just I, I'm very yeah. So I, I don't mind people bringing that up as long as they like tack down words like alleged. You know, in in the description. I, you know, there's a great great quote that's accredited, as I recall, to Hermann Goering. Uh, who was the Reich culture minister, um, almost an oxymoron, uh, which was, when I hear the word culture, I reach for my pistol. Well, when I hear the phrase, the Eisenhower Treaty with the Aliens of 1954, I reach for mine. So many people in the field confuse their longings, their wishes, their dreams, their beliefs with friggin' reality. We don't know just about everything. And if you want to believe something is so, that is your privilege and your right. But do not tell me it's factual because you saw it in a documentary or that somebody with a high security clearance told you and you're not at liberty to reveal who they are for threats for your own safety and theirs and blah, 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 blah. There is, you know, after 37 years in this field, I am really clear that I know not that much. And what I do know, I am very careful to parse from what I think, I believe, what I suspect, what I fear, what I wonder. And that irritates a certain number of people who read my work or follow me in the public realm. Uh, But damn, um, for me, it's like the definition of being a Zen beginner, knowing that you know nothing and having it be... All right. I know that I don't know nothing. I know more than nothing. And I can make better educated guesses than uh, and speculate maybe on a, a, a better, more accurate level than a lot of people because of my experience in the field. But, yes, the big but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's my, the way I sort of phrase it is like the only thing I can say for certain is that something is going on. And beyond that, um, it is all, you know, it all has to be framed with words like, you know, I sense and, you know, here, let's speculate and perhaps and, you know, one, one might One of the reasons conclude. I value you so much as a friend, Mike, and, you know, right now, for example, uh, I know people who I adore, who I, whose friendship I value, who I do really anything for, who have 
legitimate abduction experiences. I'd bet my life on it, no problem. And quite a number of them are getting similar messages, thought forms, feelings, beliefs, and that's fine. Um, And a number of them feel that these are indicative of an absolute truth. My feeling is 100% that may be the fact, but I have to play devil's advocate and say it also may not be true. And all of you are being led to believe this for some reason that we are not privy to that may not be in our best interests or not quite in our best interests. And don't believe everything you're told. As Bud used to say, um, why should we trust them any more than we trust the United States Air Force? And I say that with all due respect to the fact that there may well be a variety of thems out there, other intelligences from different places, dimensions, what have you, that may mean us everything that we mean each other, from the very good to the not very good. So, again, we're talking about a science fiction movie here, and a damn good one. And one for me that was also somewhat prophetic, because it was less than a year later that we had the huge Washington, D.C. overflights of, yes, real UFOs, photographed, witnessed by thousands of people, jets scrambled, couldn't touch them. Um, less than a year later. Oh, and then also, yeah, and then in, uh, Frank Fraschino like s- puts forth that uh, the uh, the actual UFO flyover in Washington D.C. with the jet scrambled coincides with the um, Flatwoods Monster case. Yes, and uh, you know which has all the uh, you know you know early you know basically the government showing up on the scene in secretive yeah. ways oh, yeah. uh right. and you know his hypothesis and he's also very good at not you know jumping to any uh, in yeah, what, in, let's let's establish right here that our friend Frank Fraschino Jr is not a but the world's ranking scholar on this particular case and wrote a great book about it a book that I love of his though is shoot them down uh which is the story of the Eisenhower uh, the the Truman order to fire upon these unknowns if they did not respond in conventional terms. Maybe not the best decision the president ever made. Yes, and and the implication is that, that this, you know, that they may have uh, uh, crippled one of these in-flight flying saucers and it made it all the way to Pennsylvania and mm. um, and that's where the, uh, the uh, Flatwoods Monster story, you know, well sort be. of comes into play. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, so, so these multiple overlapping uh, phenomena, and that is, yeah, that is interesting. That it was within with less than a year. I didn't. I actually reckon. I, I just have 1952 written here, and I, I, and I'm not sure when actually the day that Earth stood still was, was. Um, but that doesn't really matter as far as like you know. Yeah, and let's also remember about the film because we've got other ones to cover. Let's keep in mind that the great character actor Sam Jaffe uh, played a character based only on Dr. Albert Einstein. And when Klaatu, our handsome alien guy, learns that there is no way that the United States Secretary of State is going to be able to set up a meeting with all the leaders of the world because they are in a bit of a falling out at that amazing point in the Cold War, he decides that who he needs to see is the equivalent of the smartest guy in the world. And it is uh, along with the little boy, Bobby, the son uh, of Patricia Neal's character, that they show up 
at the great scientist's home. He's not there. It's locked. Uh, Klaatu works a little magic on the doorknob there, goes in there, sees a blackboard filled with a, you know, advanced calculus equation of, you know, who knows how many uh, 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 symbols and realizes that the doctor has made a small mistake, corrects the error, is discovered by the housekeeper, gives her his phone number and is invited back to have a chat uh, with the doctor, um, which plays well into the ending where his message is interestingly one that dovetails directly into one of the most remarkable aspects of Project Sign, the February 1948 United States Air Force uh, report on UFOs and their implications, and to the best of our knowledge, the first one that we can confirm, extensive report on the subject. And it is, for me, one of the great bits of declassified American documents uh, where it is noted that these machines... Um, are now coming here and the intelligence behind them because since 1945 we've been doing something on Earth that could be observed and measured from outer space, blowing up nuclear bombs. And in light, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm close, in light of the past history of humanity, they have every reason to be concerned. And in a 100 years, not much time in the great shape of things, but in, you know, uh, soon enough, we human beings with our, and we're talking about the world of men here, not mankind. Women are not responsible for this in my observation. We are going to be out in space with our um, violent psychology, uh, our fear, and our advanced hardware looking for things to blow up and beings to fight. Uh, so that we should, above all else, expect their appearances here at this point, talking about 1948. And what Klaatu warns, and this is a spoiler, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to watch the film and haven't seen it before, turn your radio off now and turn it on in one minute. Klaatu warns humanity that if we don't get our act together, our little earth will be burned up like a cinder that the Gort-type robots, um, and this is not necessarily a good thing because it precludes uh, free will, but in light of our not being able to uh, rein in our own violent behavior, they station them on planets to vaporize violence and people who inflict violence, and everybody gets along just fine as a result. So do we want to have a planet full of robot policemen or get our act together and stop murdering each other with these more uh, terrifying and advanced weaponry. Very interesting. And then he takes off into the universe, and the theremin theme comes up, and we're on to our next film. Yeah, I will also add that uh, um, in the day the Earth stood still, uh, this is this I this there's a the disclosure movement here. So a few things. So so the mm -hmm. disclosure movement, whatever that means. Like mm. I'm actually not really sure what disclosure means. I know that there's <laughs> there are people out there. I know Richard Dolan wrote a good book on it. Uh, Stephen Bassett is is beating the drum uh, mercilessly. Uh, you know, Stephen the, Greer has his own idea of it. Yeah, and and. Um, you know the exopolitics movement. I'm not quite yeah. sure what that really means. But yeah. so my there's two things, right? There's two ways to look at it. One is that it takes place with 
uh, you know, the president, you know, going to his podium, making a proclamation, everyone in the audience, you know, takes, a, you know, gasps, and then he, you know, steps off. And then, oh, then now it's disclosed. I don't think it's going to play out like that. The no, other, it's not. <laughs> yeah. The other way it's going to, that, that it is going to play out is basically they are here. Mm-hmm. That they, whatever the entities are behind this complex phenomena, will make their presence undeniably known. Um, my question for you, did I ever send you a copy of my paper, um, Politics, Religion, and Human Nature, which not only addresses the origins of the ridicule factor, but just what we're talking about here? What is disclosure? How do you handle limited disclosure? Is it right to simply let everything that we, at the most highly classified levels, you know, know as far as the public at large goes? What are the implications of, so to say, dumping this knowledge on a world that may not be ready for it, um, aside from the fact that there are certainly a portion of us that are studied in this subject and think that we're ready for something like this? I, When I began um, in the late 1970s to really be involved in this field, I was your, you know, generic issue, um, in-your-face, power to the people, freedom of information, we can handle it. Um, who are you to be sitting on this stuff? Tell us everything and we'll sort it out and we'll get through it. I'm not so sure about all that now. And a, many people who advocate disclosure, I don't think have fully thought through the implications of just letting everything go that we, people like you and I, feel that the government knows or has. Um, and what I'm going to do is send you a copy of the paper. Oh, well, I think I have it somewhere. You did send it well, to me. Well, then I'm going it. to invite you to post it on your website. Um, and it's one of those things that I've written that I have no interest in maintaining um, a copyright on or making money on. I just like it to get out there and people to read it and make their own decisions about my thinking relative to this. And if they feel it's of some value, share it with other people. Um, but yes, uh, disclosure is a very thorny issue. And you know what? I think it's something you and I could tackle uh, in a more focused way on a future show. Yeah, I just want to say, so just a few more things on that. So yeah. that, so, um, so they are here, right? So I, you know, like, I don't think it's going to play out where the president's going to stand at a podium and, and make an announcement. Um, and it might play out with with like a you know them undeniably making their presence known which you know funny well, way yes. I mean, to me they may be the ones to indicate, instigate disclosure and if they do game over yes and and i you know disclosure may be a verb in the sense that it may take you know all these years for it to slowly you know uh, seep into our co- public consciousness yes. it's certainly seeped in in the form of science fiction movies and culture, and everyone has a pop culture sure. knowledge of this stuff um, you know, so it, it might be happening right now as a verb well, rather yeah. than we as may a be noun down the road. In a hundred-year period of time to normalize these ideas that we're talking about with enough of a critical mass of humanity, because it's certainly going to be a minority of people, let's say they're looking for 10% of the world's people to be knowledgeable about this, to be seriously reflect, reflective on the implications for the worlds of human commerce, business, industry, theology, uh, philosophy, what have you, um, to assist the others when they decide that it's time to hit the fan and just bring this out. Um, A very mediocre 
television miniseries uh, from the early 80s that was made into an equally mediocre, um, bigger budget miniseries a few years back was um, V, the letter V. And it was about aliens coming to Earth and making their presence known, and we're here to cure cancer and cure your ills and make sure everybody is eating right, and we live in a wonderful world, and we're all together on this. But, of course, their intentions are not what they maintain, and then underneath their um, kind of hot girl and male model-looking latex exteriors, they are reptoids who eat mice, human beings, and God knows what else. And the film, the, the miniseries in both cases, degenerates for me into a World War II resistance movies with bad aliens rather than Nazis, the best um, villains ever, um, doing the thing. However, the beginning is worthy of some of the greatest scientific, uh, I'm sorry, science fiction um, premises ever. Put him right up there with Philip K. Dick or Gene Roddenberry or Isaac Asimov or uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Namely, the world wakes up one morning and there are giant honking mile across motherships hanging over the 60 biggest cities in the world or something like that. I love that premise. And again, if they are interested in disclosure, maybe they are taking the time so that we all won't freak the hell out and go nuts to enculturate the ideas that we're talking about into a series of generations of people in the world so that when they do make their presence known, if that's what they want to do, there'll at least be a critical base of reasoning and a network of scholars and intellectuals and scientists and, you know, whomever to get this thing, make this transition a little bit smoother. But the idea, I think, is brilliant. And in both cases, in the miniseries from 82, I guess it was, or something, and one that was made a few years ago, the visuals are just great and a lot of fun. And human reactions are, you know, absolutely across the spectrum. Yes, yes. They become gods as well as villains. Yeah, they get worshipped as well as, you know, sort of plotted (laughs) against. So now also if you – well, like this is hard to get off of the day the Earth stood still, but (laughs) the very beginning of the day the Earth stood still in essence has that, um, you know, there's a montage oh with uh, of the, of the, the the silver disc in full daylight flying over it's London, flying over Paris, brilliant. and cuts to the um, to the military guys looking at it on radar, and, and back and forth to the, the uh, people in the radio rooms broadcasting in Hindi or Russian or what have you. It's wonderful. Yes. So 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 there it is. 1951. You know that that same opening sequence of V is is very you know is very portrayed. much so. In the same way, yeah. Now, and in um, a way that is so human and so elegant. And you know what? Um, in several cases in that film, they use people whose names are lost to us now in 2012. But, for example, Gabriel Heater. He was a guy who um, played himself as a major radio broadcaster, you know, right up there with people like Walter Winchell, uh, maybe a little bit less known, but somebody whose name would have resonated and added a true documentary quality to that film when it came out. He was the fellow with a hat. He had a hat on, right? In the, in the, in the as newsroom? I recall, um, no, no. I, he was in his radio room broadcasting. It was just a brief clip. Okay, because uh, there was a news reporter that had a, had a fedora on and was smoking a cigarette, like on air, like you you know, know at what? his desk. 
we're, we're both going to have to rewatch it and um, then do a whole other show on the movie. <laughs> yeah. The um, and so yeah. So the, the, as well as a UFO allegory in a in a Cold War allegory, it is certainly a uh, a Christ Ooh. allegory too. Where um, yes. the the name that uh, that Michael Rennie takes as he walks around Washington D.C. trying to learn about humanity is Carpenter, which uh, it doesn't. Yeah. You know, that's a very Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And he also, not, you know, spoiler alert again, he does get killed and rise again from the dead. Um, yes, so there's all these little Christ allegories that take place in the in the um, the production. So, uh, so here's yes, here. Like, exactly. my, so my my point is like the day there sits still as an example of. Um, I just I'm going to use Stephen Bassett here as an example. He is so eager for for disclosure, yes. and if it took place, you know, like if Michael Rennie with his nice, beautiful, deep voice and his handsome face and his, you know, his, uh, uh, you know, soothing ways were yeah. to step off of the UFO, you know, I would be all for it, right? Oh, I, I don't think it's going to play out that way. I, I think it, I think it was Whitley Strieber. Yes, it was Whitley Strieber within the last year or so wrote an essay, a little uh, uh, diary entry, journal entry on his site about disclosure. And um, Ever the Poet, um, you know, he said, you know, basically don't expect their arrival or di- disclosure to play out in any way that we can predict. He, yeah. you know, sort of postulated it may be far stranger than we can imagine, where instead of the entities simply, you know, showing up in the skies and flying saucers, they may actually begin emerging from our bedroom walls, yes. uh, which I thought was a, you know, very frightening set of imagery. But I, I think it sort of plays to the fact that we're dealing with something that, uh, you know, alien in the in the Webster's dictionary it doesn't yeah. say anything about something from another planet. It is it basically says something so uh, different that it is unknowable. I think Whitley's very perceptive there, and the fact is, uh, to paraphrase a famous quote by somebody whose name eludes me at the moment, the universe is not only stranger than we imagine; it's stranger than we can imagine, and there's no reason to think that all of our little human scenarios that we play out in our minds or or speculate on will have any relevance to this process once it actually starts to go into effect or makes itself known. Yes, and I always, you know, like what I catch people doing, you know, people in this field when they write or talk, or they will uh, anthropomorphize. You know, they'll they'll take the entity and then they'll treat it basically like us, right? So like, Thank oh, the you. little entities yes. on the flying saucer, they're basically us, right? So they're scientists from another planet. <laughs> they're coming here to it's collect data. The best data. we can do. Yeah, <laughs> and I am always reminded of, of um, you know, like the little uh, Peter Cottontail stories with their little <laughs> British uh, uh, woodcut sort of looking illustrations. And <laughs> then Peter Cottontail, the little rabbit, like, you know, has a little vest on and he sits at a table and drinks tea. Um, I mean, that's a very quaint image. But that ain't what rabbits do, you know. And well, I think in England that, they do, not here. <laughs> well, yeah, so, but I just I worry that that like you know like I mean it's a very quaint image to think that yeah. the aliens are are flying on their little spaceships just like you know we go to the moon and and you know scoop up uh, soil samples. Um, yes. And I think that is every bit as naive as thinking that the rabbits wear uh, little bow ties and 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 you know and little vests going Um, back to um buck rogers one of the things that stayed in my mind as uh, an eight or nine year old when i was first uh happy enough to uh come upon one of these uh, old series that our parents used to watch in movie theaters as an extra with your double feature and your newsreel was the fact that ming the merciless 
who was, as I recall, the Emperor of Mars. Now, that guy was a real – he took some real fashion risks. Uh, he had fabulous kind of pointy uh, sort of Mandarin shoulders and skull caps and robes. And that's one thing for sure about aliens. They dress wild. There's no question. Except, of course, for the greys who don't seem to be interested in clothing at all. Uh, but, yeah, we do – you know, and for me, it begins with a wonderful statement from the late Margaret Mead, uh, arguably the greatest um, anthropologist um, popularly known in, in mid-century America, who, who began uh, her public life as the daughter of missionaries um, in um, um, uh, some, not Samoa, um, uh, but the South Pacific, and wrote, in the Trobriand Islanders, who wrote a book in the 1920s called The Sexual Life of Savages that put her on the map, and it's still a brilliant, insightful book uh, about the simple contact with nature and uh, the destruction of sort of Western influence, so to say. Uh, but somebody actually, when she was um, a director at the Museum of Natural History, um, asked her, this was in the late 70s, I think, uh, mid-70s, her feelings about, you know, UFOs and their implications. And I'm glad she was on record, even though, again, she did uh, anthropomorphize. She said, I, she started by saying words to the effect of, I have no idea how they think, so I can't really speculate. However, if they think in even remotely like us, if it were me, and I was, you know, in the middle of the Amazon in an area that had never been penetrated by, you know, known people or an airplane flew over. And I parted the bushes and I looked down into the valley and there was this Stone Age culture, the thing that we've always dreamt of coming upon. All I'd want to do is observe and I'd set up my cameras and we'd take our notes and we'd study and write until on a certain level, gold uh, platinum or oil is discovered on their lands, and then all bets are off, and their culture will disintegrate as we rape, uh, you know, um, uh, their native land. Yes, yes, and then you know that yeah, they, and then they would be. Uh, I just you know their culture would would never survive. I just think of well, like would the, die. Yes. yeah the you know just the, the what the plight of the American Indian. Well, is, yeah, is, and what is happening in the Amazon now, and Brazil seems. Um, unable to stop, which is terrible because it affects us all. That rainforest is crucially important to the survival of all life on Earth. And, you know, at our worst, we are our worst enemy. We are vermin <laughs> infesting our host, this wonderful dear little planet that we all cling to and, you know, sustains our, all of our lives. Um, it is the worst kind of um, thoughtlessness and rape of natural resources, and it is spreading like a cancer. Um, they don't seem able to stop it um, every year. Uh, you know, some area the size of New Jersey gets wiped out and turned into a, a little boom town. Um, uh, forests are cleared so that they can farm. The farming dies in two years because they destroy the soil, they bring in cattle, um, and then they just expand into more forest. So we're off topic here, but um, not a good scenario at all. But yes, you're absolutely right. We, many people, can only 
see them and their motives and the way that their behavior must operate in terms of human models. And that is simply inaccurate to the best of our lack of knowledge. <laughs> yeah, you are, you are, yeah, you are, you're anthropomorphizing, you're looking at them and thinking they are us in just some, you know, just a little bit down, farther down the road. Um, hey, so, so uh, anything else on the they that stood still? We could probably go on for it all day. Let's move on. Okay, so Earth versus Fla- the Flying Saucers. Yeah. So now that movie, uh, 1956, mm-hmm. um, it's really funny because Major Donald Kehoe is actually listed as a writer. I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he, he, uh, he uh, uh, you know, distanced himself greatly from that. I think it was just someone in the script writing room had that book um, and had his book on the, you know, on the, on the table at the same time. Yes. Um, and if you're talking about strange coincidences, the actor, the, I will say, the great B actor, Hugh Marlowe, bears an uncanny resemblance to a man named Mitt Romney. Ah. Coincidence? Maybe. I don't know. I'm going to say nothing more about it. But yes, it is one of the great B films, and it involves uh, the fact, in filmatic terms, that they are here not in our best interests. Not at all. Yes, I will argue that that it is not a B movie in the lowest grade no. that gets that gets bandied about. B movie as a cinema term is you know you would see the feature film and they were always double features and then the <laughs> B movie would would play afterwards. So yeah. going to the movies was you know, even something... the great you know um, um, uh, invasion of the body snatchers is usually referred to as a B. And I actually um, had the great pleasure of. Um, uh, speaking to um, the the man who had the lead in that film, Kevin McCarthy, a few years before he died about the film. And, of course, they had no idea they were making a cult classic. It was just a paycheck and a film with a small budget at the time. And that was directed by Don Siegel, the man who yeah. was Dirty Harry. Yeah. And probably that? one of the best trivia bits uh, mm. you can possibly have in a circle of film nerds yeah. is to say that Sam Peckinpah played the meter reader who was only seen in the basement in a very spooky scene where they're like, what's the meter reader doing in the basement? He's like, I know. so yeah, that was Sam Peckinpah. So, um, like that if you're geeks like us. So, um, now, uh, that movie had special effects by, um, Ray Harrahausen. Yeah. And, uh, quite, you know, I mean, it's, you know, I, I'm, it, it seems ridiculous looking at it now, but it was surprisingly, I mean, those were high end special effects for its day. Um, and, and, you know, they're laughable now. Uh, they weren't then. Um, the, the, uh, and the, the, so the, the plot of that movie, this is very funny. This is something that I noticed, and I went to. I was a. I'm a film school dropout. I went to one year of NYU film school. So if anyone wants to ask me questions about Citizen Kane, I'd probably be able to answer them. And I was a film minor at the School of Visual Arts. Ah, so you were right up the right up. Oh, you look just a few blocks uptown. It's from one me. of the reasons we get along so well, Mike. Yeah. So um, I d- yes yes. So we're, uh, now um, there's a similarity between the Earth versus Flying Saucers and the Birds. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, and this is something that uh, uh, Hitchcock talked about, and you can read about it in a book that uh, anyone who's got, you know, of a certain generation who studied yes. film, there's a book called Hitchcock, Hitchcock Truffaut. Truffaut. Yeah. So um, <laughs> where the, the allegory in The Birds, as well as, I'll say, the allegory in 
uh, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, which came out um, before, I think it's uh, four years before the birds came out. The birds came out in 1960, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's correct. And uh, and you know what? I mean, it's the birds is such a modern film compared to uh, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Also, the fact that it's filmed in cinemascope and in color and has really <clears throat> name actors in it as well, um, as well as the Hitchcock genius touch. And... um. Did Bernard Herrmann do the music for Earth versus the Flying Saucers? I know he did it for The Day the Earth Stood Still. No. I believe that the... Well, wait a minute now. I take that hey, back. Hey, I'm, I'm going to get online. The Here Day I'm... the Earth Stood Still, um, which um, was at Carmen Dragon. Um, Bernard Herrmann certainly was one of the great, great uh, writers of... of um, uh, music for films, no question about it. That is something I'm going to have to check. I'm doing um, it right now. I don't know. I don't know. Yes, and um, I'm typing in Bernard Herrmann right now. Mm. I can edit this mm-hmm. out. I, I can't multitask. I'm gonna. I'm actually a very lousy uh, radio talk show host. So that, yeah, that's, but that's, you can edit the hell out of these yeah. shows so it sounds like you know you're a genius, which you yeah. are on a certain level. Uh, See, we'll take out that ah uh, and that two seconds of silence because that denotes that you're not a genius. <laughs> okay, yeah, so I'm looking at it. Oops, no, the day the earth it still came up, so yeah. Um uh yeah, so so it's Bernard Herrmann did not do the music for uh, uh Earth versus the Flying Saucers, but um he did do the the bird sound effects for the birds. There is actually no music in the birds. It's all bird I, sound I have effects. to digress for one moment um with, with another bit of trivia. As I recall, the music for the score for um uh, the Great The Day the Earth Stood Still was written by Carmen Dragon. Would you look that up? Who, if I'm right, was the father of Daryl Dragon, who went by the performing name of The Captain in The Captain and Tennille, a group that many people will never forget but might want to, although I'm fond of a few of their songs for sure. And they had a TV show. They did for a while. It's yeah. true. Now we're really off on a tangent. Back we go. Um, the premise in, uh, once again, in um, Earth versus Flying Saucers is we have a scientist, Hugh Marlowe, and he has just gotten married to a very fetching young woman. I'm trying to remember if she's played by um, uh, not Joan... Oh, dear. oh, I no. could look it up. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I, I won't do it right now. Hey, let they're, me just... on, they're driving along. I think it's their honeymoon drive, and they're chatting. And then in the rear screen projection of their car, a uh, their, first their radio goes staticky. Which, is, which they, is something that it happens and is well, in real. Important. That's yep. exactly. That does happen. And then um, there's this, you know, theremin kind of whoop, 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 whoop kind of sound. And... A giant honking, big metal, disc-shaped, regulation-issue flying saucer comes in behind them, and they're watching it. And they had been re- he had been recording, dictating something. Um, and they capture that sound on the recording. Now, her father is a commanding general in the United States Army at the Pentagon, of course. And uh, they play the sound for him. Ultimately, we get into a war with these things. And this is another interesting thing. At this point in history, and it just dovetails into UFO studies, uh, the brilliant Dr. Wilhelm Reich had been convicted on a, uh, well, a interstate shipment of a um, orgone 
energy device. And rather than allow the, the doctor who shipped it to take responsibility, he did, was in prison at the time, but he had developed uh, an extraordinary apparatus called the Cloudbuster, which does have the ability to change weather patterns. And I know for a fact, because I've seen them in operation, studied them for decades, and wrote, written about and lectured about them extensively. And somehow, these devices attracted the attention of UFOs when they were, and this is real and documented, when they were first uh, worked on in Maine and then uh, developed in field testing in Arizona in the mid-50s. And I think there was an awareness of this. It was certainly not, you know, um, classified knowledge or just a wonderful fortuitous coincidence among the screenwriters. And overnight, they develop a fleet of pickup trucks manned with devices that are able to destabilize these UFOs. And, uh, of course, we have a tremendous battle sequence. Um, but the uh, UFO beings are not very nice, and they abduct people. Another uh, really, um, I thought, rather visionary point of the film. And when they get them, they will take all of the knowledge out of your brain and turn you into a babbling idiot, although you're not even babbling. You're just a brainless person. And... Um, this also plays into the plot of the film. But, you know, for so many of us, Ray Harryhausen's brilliant, pioneering special effects, the fact that he was the man at this time and stop action, real life animation of moving tiny objects, you know, a fraction of an inch and filming thousands of little uh, single frame sequences created. Well, you know, the pioneer, of course, was uh, his mentor who created the King Kong figure. But Harryhausen creates a sequence whereby some of these flying saucers, as they destabilize, come down and take out major American landmarks, which I'm sure many original theatergoers watched in complete horror that many of us watch in glee, much as watching uh, major American landmarks explode in films um, like Independence Day. And the sequences where one of them comes down and uh, takes the Washington Monument with it. Oh, Peter, I just lost you. I just lost you. Is second only to the, yes. Oh, I'm, oh, we're I'm back. back. We're back. We're, never, we lost I'm, each other for just about three you seconds. Hear me now. I hear you sound great. Okay. Okay. Well, you do, do your we... magic. In... Yeah. The, the, the powers that be don't want you to talk about uh, knocking down the Washington Monument, it sounds like. Or so. crash into the Capitol Dome. Yeah. Okay. Well, all as right. well as the, the yeah, the lot. Okay, keep going. Yeah, lot, they crash into a lot of buildings in Washington D.C. Yeah, so those are the two best ones, though. Well, they also take down a corner of the Supreme Court, allegorical of uh, real events today, I'd say. Yeah. Um. So similar to, I'm just jump back a little bit. So similar to the birds, you you the uh, Hugh Marlowe and his you know, his lovely wife, you know, uh, are on their honeymoon and they're kind of driving along and like you know, hey baby, it's you know, it's our honeymoon and the, the and implication you know is that they're and, on their way to their very first nuptial bliss. And I I think you should stop right there. You got it right though. Yes. Now what happens in in uh, in the birds is Tippy Hedren and, and Rod Taylor you know, sort of meet, they're doing the flirty seduction thing. You know, there's like this impending, you know, uh, tryst that seems to be playing out. What happens is the nature itself, you know, yeah. up, up, it is an upheaval, almost like a puritanical 
uh, upheaval of of these birds, these seagulls, initially, that and they what uh, we human beings are doing on Earth. Yes, so okay. so that, that so these birds, you know, and and Hitchcock is quite open about this as the subplot, you know, the, or the subtext of the plot that you know they are you know putting up a barrier between him and Tippi Hedren having sex. Now uh, the same thing happens with the UFOs. The, because the, the, he con- wanted to have sex with Tippi Hedren, uh, but that's a whole other side of the issue. Yeah, so that's right. There was a, yeah, there is a very creepy, uh, you know, sort of casting room couch mm-hmm. story that shows up in a very uh, sort of mean-spirited book called uh, The Dark Side of Genius. Um, well, it's also now part of the uh, plot of the two current Hitchcock uh, biopics, the one that was made for HBO and the one that's in release now. Oh, okay. Well, I'll put you in poor, poor, whatever, you know, sort of. I know. You know anyway, back to, guy, um, you know, I think you brought, you're, you're touching Hollywood on a Starlet. very important point of the film. So, yes. Yeah, so, so the, the, throughout Earth versus Flying Saucers, there's like, you know, fi- you know, they're like uh, Hugh Marlowe and his wife, you know, finally get to the hotel room and they're, you know, they're like, whoo, well, you know, finally that whole mess is, you know, mm-hmm. solved with all Not UFOs. Not going to happen yet. And now, like, you know, there's kind of, they, they've, you know, they don't really quite say it, but the implication is like, whoa, it's getting late, you know, time for bed, honey. <laughs> and then sure enough, the phone rings and it's like, oh my God, the flying saucers, they're above Washington, right. D.C. right now. So then they have to go out and That's save right. the world. So just what the birds did, you know, in the birds is that, you know, they like, you know, put up this barrier between, uh, you know, this, this, uh, the sexual act. I just thought that was so strange that that mm. was the that was sort of the subplot of of uh, uh, you know of um, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Yep. And there was also a light orb that showed up in there, which is very interesting. Which yes. I don't think was quite part yes. of the lexicon of of UFOs then, though it certainly is now. Well, I also like the fact that it um, uh, kind of pointed a. Um, uh, a finger toward something that had not really been dealt with much in science fiction at that point, and uh, that is the shielding of these, you know, advanced machines like, um, you know, the standard thing in Star Trek of having these shielding devices to either make you invisible or to um, disallow a projectile to uh, make contact with your ship and damage it. And we see, you know, they're firing. We've got all these regular soldiers firing guns and World War II tanks and howitzers that are shooting the heck at these things. But the shield disallows them to come through. And then the beam weapon, the terrifying beam weapon, which um, is very similar to that employed in a film from four years before, um, the the tremendous Gene Barry version of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, where it not only destroys the, um, the bad things, but like Gort's beam, it melts them down and vaporizes them. Uh, Gort, of course, being the robot from uh, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. But yes, there is... Again, references to abduction, to um, mind control, to um, uh, protective fields around advanced devices that we human beings somehow, with our grit and determination and spunk, are able to you know, resolve one way or the other. But will they return? That is always the lingering question at the end. Yes. Um so Invaders from Mars, 1953, um, uh, that movie, uh, which is actually, um, 
it sort of plays out in one sense as a little kid's movie. There's a kid at the, at the center of the, of the film. Well, more than that, Mike, and this is something that helped to destroy the awful remake of the film, it is the only science fiction film I am aware of, and it is doubly powerful because of it, where the entire plot plays out through the eyes of a child, not having a child as a character. And if you think about it, all of the observations, the determinations, um, the interactions are all with this wonderful little boy actor. Um, and that makes it terrifying. And when I saw that film as a child at the Fantasy Theater in Rockville Center, I think for a 35-cent matinee, my God, how old am I? Was I born in World War I? Um, now, the fact is, it was a truly frightening film because it was filmed from the child's point of view. Yes, and there, the one scene in particular ch- freaked me out. Well, very chilling, and it was chilling. There was a hallway that the boy walked into and was going to tell the police officer. So he goes up and he tells he's about to tell the police officer, like you know what's going on in the crashed you know flying saucer in his backyard, and yes. and the the police and officer that daddy's has, not acting normal. Yeah, and, and and the police officer has the telltale alien implant, I think, on the back yes. of the neck. He has the scar on the back of the neck. That's the place where they put them, and that's what he notices about his dad. And as very much again, when the aliens get to you, um, as in um, the invasion of the body snatchers, you are no longer an emotional, reflective, reactive reactive feeling human being you are an automaton you are part of a mass consciousness again very powerful allegories to the american uh vision of communism in the uh, soviet sense that you are now part of the collective you're not a free being and that was terrifying once again we're talking about a film that was truly visionary also in that it literally um imagined um, or pointed a finger toward abductions, implants, um, mind control. A gray-headed alien that that had a great big bald head um, in the glass jar, you know. In In the the fishbowl, yes. That amazingly scary thing, and it was all telepathic, not to mention the beings themselves or the underground, secret underground base that they create in our uh, protagonist's backyard with its wonderful puckery, bubbly walls and all of the bubbling sounds uh, accompanied probably a $5 special effect that still resonates with me as an adult. Um, That film is truly in a class by itself. And the father, who we meet at the beginning, he's a nice guy. He's one step away from Ward Cleaver. He is uh, played by a a good-be actor called Leif Erikson. Uh, who did a number of films in his career and some and television didn't work. Didn't he discover America, too, like before he Columbus? Did. Well, that's a whole other okay. thing. Uh, also, the actor, the actress, now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, maybe you can look it up, who played the mom was Hilary Brooke, who had a very interesting film history as um, the kind of uh, Matahari character in one of the great um, Basil Rath. Bone, Nigel Bruce, Sherlock Holmes movies, and was the pretty female foil Hillary to, oh God, Abbott and Costello. And so they made kind of an all-American couple in a way, and the little boy is as cute as a bug and happy as he can be. Also, the story arc 
is not only brilliant, it has something so original and so powerful that years ago, when a friend of mine made me a copy of the film from his original VHS that was an uh, English um, version of the film, I was shocked and then furious to realize they had dropped the ending. You remember, it begins with little Bobby or whatever his name is being put to bed by mom and dad in his bedroom. And, you know, there's the view of the the nice backyard and the field and, you know, where it's all going to happen, that mysterious area. And he goes to bed and, of course, he wakes up during the night with the flying saucer coming in and disappearing behind the hill. And then he, you know, wakes up mom and dad and tells them about it. Dad goes out to investigate and is sucked down into the ground and becomes the automaton. By the time he comes back from the cops, they've got mom as well. Well, it ends after the running and the panic and this huge climax of conflict with the aliens and them leaving again. He wakes up at the end. And it's all been a dream. And he looks out the window and there comes the flying saucer into the backyard. It's all beginning the end in the British version. It doesn't happen. He wakes up and it's the end. I mean, hello, Hollywood. Can you imagine? They totally destroy the shock, the, uh, originality of ending the film in a state of total anxiety by making a nice the end at the end and you know what again for a b type movie maybe made on what a sixty thousand dollar budget or something at the time who knows not much it still for me is one of the most powerful films especially from the point of view of a child and, you know, as somebody who um, has a great deal of hands-on experience in abduction research and abduction studies and who knows enough of, you know, hundreds of actual cases, the idea of implants influencing the mind. Um, and I'll, I'll also telepathy. add the – yeah, I'll also yeah. add like – you know, like uh... – the, if the, if if the subplot of the you know the film is that he suspected it was a dream only yeah. to look out the window and see the flying saucer <gasps> just how i mean you experience it in some cases yes how many times have you heard someone say something to the effect of you know i had a dream that was so vivid it seemed so real that's right yeah that's right except that i've got this mark on my body the next morning and 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 yeah 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 and i woke up in somebody else's t-shirt yes yes um the uh yeah so that that movie actually i was i hadn't seen it until an adult and in fact it was you that sent me the dvd and i so i've seen both endings the british ending and the english or the american ending and um uh and i was you know that one the chilling scene for me i'll repeat myself is that scene yeah. where the boy is in the hallway of the police station and and uh and i'll jump back to robert wise this is interesting um the the hallway was created with in the police station, it was obviously a set. It was yeah. irrationally proportioned. Um, <laughs> I mean, the ceilings like must have been 30 feet hall, tall, and there was nothing at all. That was totally vacant. And that is sort of a hallmark of, of uh, Robert Wise. He does that in uh, uh, multiple films where he has people walking down these hallways that are strangely proportioned. Um, it happens in... Uh, psychologically geared to, uh, again, the German expressionist set makers were the real pioneers of twisting 
human feeling, creating anxiety by stilting angles, by creating extreme uh, points of view that he took advantage of brilliantly. And I'll tell you what, I challenge anybody who has a modicum of feeling, even sophisticated filmgoers who will look at a film like this overall and, you know, be smiling knowledgeably as they see how simple it all is. If they truly allow themselves to get caught up in what we're seeing here and what is happening to this little all-American, innocent, leave-it-to-beaver type, you know, generic boy, and when he sees that scar on the back of the neck. And by the way, it, does unlike, his, it happens to his mom, too, doesn't it? Of course. Yes, yes. And the other thing that we learn, which is doubly terrifying, especially when it involves mom and dad, by gosh, is that unlike the implant phenomena that we know exists as part of this other intelligence thing and the implant phenomena that exists in terms of human technology, these things, if you want to stop the being that the implant is in, you push a little button on your space console and they die. And the knowledge that mom and dad now have these things uh, is very understandably heartbreakingly terrifying for this character. And it's another reason why mm, I extremely dislike uh, Toby Hooper's remake of the film. The child who plays the uh, the lead, um, who I think is his son with the actress Karen Black, who we haven't seen in years, but turned in some great work in the 70s and the 80s. He is an obnoxious little word, and um, it is he is a character. It is not from his point of view. Any, any possibility of some special sensibility geared to um, like a really good Grimm's fairy tale is gone because he is such an obnoxious little twit. He's not a very good actor. And because, again, it is not filmed from the child's point of view that seemed to completely get lost on the director of the remake. Yes. Here, one quick, I'm going to jump back a little bit. Mm, um, so you, if I'm remembering this correctly, you have done a lot of research on Wilhelm Reich. Is that correct? Well, not just research. I, I was in therapy with Dr. Reich's first assistant uh, of the last 12 years of his life for more than half a dozen years of my own life. Um, in the 80s, I met so many people who knew and worked with Reich. Uh, I was privileged to observe a Cloudbuster demonstration. Um, I've written and about Reich extensively over the years. I've lectured on him in this country and at international conferences, uh, not UFO conferences, scientific conferences um, here in the States, um, in Oregon and New York, in Nice, um, in central Greece last year and in Rome next year. Um, it is an area of study I'm very proud of um, and it dovetails into Reich's observations, deductions, and conclusions about the UFO phenomena, which was something he wrote about extensively at the end of his life. So, yeah, um, I, I speak from more than book knowledge on this. Good, good. That's what I thought. Now, were you actually working on a biography of Reich? Oh, never. Oh, okay. no. Has, is the there, is there... biography it has been written by the late Dr. Myron Scharf, who I was privileged to have as a friend and who was a student of Reich's himself. Okay. It's called, by the way, 
for anybody who is interested <clears throat> on another tangent. It's called Fury on Earth, and it is the definitive biography of Wilhelm Reich. Okay, good, good. I just, I, I can't, I was remembering, yes, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the way I remembered it. I just had to ask, though. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so that, so, the, yeah, so when the, uh, you must have had a special sense of glee when the, uh, when the little, uh, World War II era jeeps like zip around the corner in downtown yeah. Washington D.C. and they've got their organ cloudbusters uh, on the back. Well, um, they had that look, but um, being that um, cloudbusters um, have to be grounded um, in in water uh, through empty cables, um, you know they had the look, uh, but it may have been coincidental as well. But I love the fact that they. You know, from the moment that we know that these things are a threat, somebody somewhere is building a fleet of these wonderful little things and mounting them on the back of um, pickup trucks and the like, and we're bringing those suckers down. Yeah. Now, um, uh, I want to jump ahead Mm -hmm. to a 1992 made-for-TV movie called Intruders. Yes. With Richard Crennan. Now, that uh, was a uh, based... On Bud Hopkins' Wait, book, eighty-two. No, I said ninety-two. Excuse me, oh, 1992. Right. I, I might well, have said eighty-two. Nineteen ninety-two. No, you you said it right. In fact, um, boy, you've touched a nerve for me because that was during um, a period of time when I was working full time, part time as Bud's assistant, and I remember the selling of the options, um, the script coming in. Uh, the fact that Richard Crenna, who uh, we lost some years ago, who's a wonderful American actor and being a good method actor, spent time with Bud. Um, some of the actors involved who came in to spend time with abductees. It's actually a miniseries that's based in part on Bud's international bestseller, Intruders, uh, around the so-called Kathy Davis case in uh, Indiana. <clears throat> And the fact is that when CBS um, wanted the option, the option was out. You know, um, certainly at the time, there was a lot more money in this than there is now. And that option had been optioned for six months or a year. And so they took the the missing time option, which was Bud's first book. But then the intruders option returned and they they grabbed that one, too. And then they grafted together a screenplay which Bud liked overall but had mixed feelings about parts of that were completely made up uh, or injected for dramatic purpose. But you know what? It was one of the best things, I think, ever made for television, certainly about the abduction phenomena. And the great actress, Mayor Winningham, uh, who played uh, my friend Debbie Jordan so brilliantly and heartbreakingly, um, it's a very special um, work for television, and it was really um, partly the result of the great, great um, president of CBS en- Entertainment at the time, Jeff Sagansky, who was probably only in his 30s, but a true visionary who brought a number of great projects to CBS at the time and whom I'm proud to call a friend, um, Yes, let's talk about Intruders, the miniseries. Yes, yeah, so now I have not been able to make it all the way through the series, and and I and I don't, and it's online right now. I've actually, it's it's oh. it's so you can just, uh, um, you know, there is a YouTube. The entire thing is on YouTube, oh. which I don't really have a problem watching long format things on on YouTube, and I think it's broken into like little twenty minute segments. So, um, so it's all there. You can watch the whole thing online. I don't think it's on Netflix. I don't think it's available in any other yeah. form. Like you can't just. <clears throat> Um, but 
And yeah, I, I don't, don't have a good answer to yeah. why I can't make it through the thing. I find it very uh, – I find I'm gritting my teeth. Uh, you May know, I offer a observation here to cut you off mid-sentence with affection and respect? It is my observation over the past three and a half decades <clears throat> that many people who have had legitimate excuse me, that is a word I, I will drop, um, who have had actual um, UFO-related abduction experiences or contact experiences that have been, to um, be mild about the term, anxiety-provoking, often, from my point of view, have real problems um, digesting things that touch too close to home, um, whether or not it is a really good book on the abduction phenomena that may bring up some of their experiences, a film treatment, or in this case, Intruders, the miniseries, where, again, some of it is completely confabulated, some of it is um, out of the, the scriptwriter's imagination, but much of it holds true to the events and experiences chronicled by the great Bud Hopkins, um, the, not a, but the pioneer in abduction research and uh, somebody we miss terribly who's been gone more than a year now. Um, and it may just be, and I offer it up as a possibility um, of why this is a problem for you. Um, yeah, I, I, it's very difficult for me to speak directly to that, you know, because my yeah. sense is... That, that the sort of cringing, you know, my toes curling in my shoes kind of sensation comes from the inaccuracies in the script. You know, like I it's Brilliant like, observation as well. Thank you. So so I may be, you know, and I believe me, I'm certainly like I am like it is doesn't bother me in the slightest <laughs> to read uh, voraciously like on, on the subject. And I mean, there is some yeah. creepy, terrifying stuff that um, that that I, you know, I read without uh, well, you know, without what? any Thank emotional you. reaction because. That is that is actually uh, a brilliant observation, Mike, and um, I can only imagine what it's like for our friend Travis Walton to rewatch Fire in the Sky again and get to the damn sequence, uh, which is completely inaccurate uh, around his abduction experiences. And both uh, Fire in the Sky and uh, Intruders were scripted uh, in part by Tracy Torme. That's correct. Um, That's correct. Now, so so here's a question I want. Did uh, it's my understanding that Richard Crenna also met with um, John Mack? That's right. John was in the work for a relatively short time at that point. I had met him several times. Had a tremendous respect, admiration. I, I love John Mack. He was such a good man. And and Crenna also, and this is true, he also spent time with John. The thought being that. We now had somebody in abduction research, even though, you know, it's it's certainly no secret that John and Bud um, had certain philosophical disagreements uh, on aspects of abduction or what it was all about or whatever. Um, but that we had somebody in the field who had the dream credentials that so many of us who had been in the field for some time before that had always hoped that somebody would come along who, oh, in this case, is, you know, a, a distinguished professor of psychiatry at Harvard, a uh, respected um, clinician 
co-founder of Cambridge Hospital Psychiatric Wing, a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer, uh, a brilliant, articulate, wonderfully well-rounded personality, and, you know, um, a genius and a, a great man, a good man, and a great guy, all at the same time. So I think it was understandable that those people involved in pulling this project together, and once, you know, it's optioned, it is out of your hands. And, you know, if Bud had had a hand in shaping the uh, the made-for-TV treatment, it would have shown more, and you would have been cringing less. But it was decided at a certain point that Krenna's character should not so much be based on Bud, although anybody who knew Bud or spent time with him, who had a sense of, you know, how he moved and how he communicated, can see Bud at points in Krenna's character. It was a hybrid character, pardon the word, um, based on Bud and John Mack. So rather than making it a painter or a psychiatrist, they made him a psychologist. And other wonderfully subtle and not too subtle compromises. Another thing that I adored is, um, you know, Bud's studio in the winter, where I worked on and off for several decades, um, was cold. You know, it's a, it's a big open space in the back of uh, a New York City building built in the 1870s. And Bud, and at home too, in the winter, one of his signature looks was these old stretched out kind of fisherman sweaters. And I love the fact that Krenna wore a sweater like that as part of, you know, his look at certain points. Um, he also, there were certain aspects of his body language that for me were both John and both Bud. And it's one of the things that made him such a wonderful choice for that role. He was terrific. You know, it's interesting because that was one of the things when I see the film yeah. and watch it, I, 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 you know, Krenna looks much more like um, John Mack. Mm. And and so I'm sort of in whatever you know it's a set in a psychiatric what he's you know at a you know, I, I'm not sure if it's set in his home or in his therapist's office but he's doing yeah. he's doing uh, you know therapy so it's classic you know mm-hmm. sort of uh, you know someone's on a couch someone's on the chair next to the couch so I definitely uh, saw it as um, much more as uh, John Mack though though what I mean, that wasn't really what bothered yes. me so and as also what's interesting is Intruders was 1992. Yes. The X-Files came out in 1993, right, right on the heels of it. They are very similar in their look, the two shows, especially the early season and the pilot of the X-Files. Well, um, yes, and not only that, but let's remember the pilot for the X-Files. And like so many people in UFO studies, I was just a big unabashed fan uh, of that series, uh, especially really the first seven of the ten years when – everybody's heart was in it. I think what happens is, you know, um, like other classic television series, it becomes a victim of its own success. Um, You are so famous. There's so much money coming in. Everybody loves your work. Um, You want to move on to other projects. You want to go on to other things. Um, And certainly the two stars, um, after the series folded, uh, David Duchovny um, and Gillian Anderson have gone on to do great work, Anderson in particular, um, and her English work in things like Bleak House, um, the the Dickens uh, miniseries that came out of England a few years back, or in in treatments of um, Edith Wharton's uh, great writing, 
this is a brilliant actress, and David Duchovny is a fine actor. But going back to the pilot, remember the whole um, the intruders thing is centered around a person in this case, Bud Hopkins, who has a life and a career. In this case, a painter in the filmatic sense as a psychologist who becomes obsessed with this subject because of the way it enters his life. And I rewatched the pilot um, for uh, the X-Files recently. My dear brother-in-law, who has the most wonderful um, DVD library of anybody I know. And thank you, Jim. We love you for that, uh, among other things. Um, He's got, you know, the whole 10 years of X-Files, among other great shows and films. And it is all about this renegade FBI agent obsessed, obsessed with the UFO phenomena. Why? Because his sister was abducted. However, unlike my obsession, and I I thought, isn't this interesting? And I watched that first um, pilot with my sister, who, as you know, was an abductee. I say was because we lost her in 2000, January 2000. we want, we really looked at each other at a certain point and said, good Lord, you know, um, my life changed overnight and my career trolley derailed. The main difference, though, was that he didn't get his sister back. I did. But I always related to the Fox Malta character. And then again, we go to um, uh, I don't know if that influenced um, the the great um, uh, Christopher. Oh, God, what's his name? Chris the yeah, exactly. Uh, Chris Carter, who um, created the X-Files, but it may have been one of the factors that enters into it. We never know in such cases. And in some cases, it may have been completely unconscious if he did see the miniseries. Who knows? Well, yeah. So I did not expect – I'm going to share a little story here, and I just want your mm-hmm. in, your input on this. I sure. may have spoken to you about this before. I can't yes. remember. Um, it has to do with the X-Files. Mm. It has to do with my own experiences. Um, uh I, I'll, anyone who's listened to this audio series has heard me tell this story in one form or another probably more times than they you know, care to admit. Um, so I'll zip right through it. In 1974, as a 12-year-old boy, I had a missing time event. Um, the young uh, – the boy that I was with – this is very interesting. I had a dream with him in – he was in the dream. We were both adults. I, this other person that I was with at the time um, – uh, remembers seeing a ufo i do not remember seeing a ufo i remember seeing the sky light up entirely orange and then um you know we both i sensed something jarring we talked about it like what just happened why did the sky light up orange what you know um uh, we were walking home from a high school football game um and i knew i wanted to be home in time to see a television show, and that television show would have been Cole uh, Shack, the Night Stalker, also. Very- yeah, and I remember when we first talked about this. I was a huge fan of that Darren McGavin uh, series. Yes, it, now it's on. You can you can you can get these episodes on Netflix and see them. It's I've cool. actually been watching the show. It holds up well ahead of its time. It holds up pretty well. I it, didn't realize yeah. how much seventies ish. But... Well, it's it's played for comedy, which I didn't yeah. really yeah, notice as a hard. boy. Right, you got Simon Oland as you know the blowtop, Mr. Uh, Vincenzo, yeah, his editor at the, at the newspaper, yeah. They, so they're basically and and the um, 
you know, the, the author of the original screenplay for the original made for TV movie, Richard Matheson. Yes. Um, oh my God. You know, he said that, you know, uh, you know, basically he, he realized like, you know, the way to play this story out is to just have it the front page, you know? So every time he goes back to the newspaper right. office, it's always a, you know, back and forth. Right, tap, tap. Screaming boss. Yeah. With a lot of, you know, you know, uh, snappy dialogue. Oh, so you betcha. So, so that was a television show. At, that show was only on for one season. I was a 12-year-old boy. I was a perfect little nerdy kid who had loved that show. Okay, So I loved that show. I wanted to be home at 10 o'clock to see this television show I loved. The way I remember the, the, the actual events, and I, this could be off a little bit, I, I figured I should have been home at 9.30. It's a very short walk between the high school where the football game and my house. So Friday night, suburbs, yeah. 1974, uh, beautiful autumn evening. Uh, I, my friend Mike, who has to walk a little farther through the neighborhood to get to his home, I say goodbye. I walk into my house. My parents are standing, you know, waiting for me. They're furious. And they're like, what are you doing out so late? And I'm like, uh, I'm not out so late. It's only, uh, it's only 9.30. I'm home in time to see this television show. And they say, no. They point to the clock. And if I remember, the the 11 o'clock news was just ending. So that would have put it about 11 I'm going to say close to 11:30, so it's between it an hour like and a half. You could catch this show on reruns. The word didn't exist in our culture yet. Yeah, so between 11. Oh man. So so roughly between an hour and a half and two hours of missing time. Now, um, when I, so all my life I knew I had the experience of showing up an hour and a half late mm. from the high school football game. I God. knew that somehow the story that I just told you got separated. And I always knew that my friend Mike and I, while walking home from a high school football game, saw an orange flash, right? I would tell the stories. I would tell them as two completely separate events. I had, I, I don't even think, which is, which is interesting. I don't even think I had the ability to, to bring them together, right? Like, I, like, so I have this event of walking home from a high school football game, seeing an orange flash. I have this other completely separate event of walking home from a high school football game and arriving uh, between an hour and a half and two hours late. Okay, so, you know, that would have been 12. I, this, so I would have been in my 40s at this point. Uh, I'm 50 years old now, so this probably would have taken place uh, probably eight years ago. There was a, a video rental store in my town. All of a sudden, it got the... Uh, uh, the whole stack of VHS. It had the first mm. season of the X Files. I'd always heard about it. I didn't. Wow. I live in a rural place. There's no television reception here. I never watch TV. Um, wow. So I people ah, people talk about this. I've been reading UFO books. This is interesting. Mm. So um, I watched the pilot episode on VHS, mm. and at the end of the VHS tape, uh, they they sort of it, you know the, the, it fades to black, and then it says, and now an audio or an exclusive interview with. The X Files creator, Chris Carter. <laughs> so he's sitting there in a chair. You know, he's talking about you know like the inspiration of the show. And what he says is, <laughs> as the inspiration, he says, <laughs> and I'm, "So now I'm sitting in my house alone, oh. watching this on the couch." He says, "You know, my inspiration for this television sh- show was a show that I loved as a kid, and I just loved this show, and I would always watch it. And it was called Shack the Night Stalker." Ah. And so, so what happened to me? is these two events, these two separate events, the missing time and the orange flash, they collided together. And I realized at that moment that it was the same night. And I had, it had not crossed my mind 
in any meaningful way in 35 years or mm. so or whatever you know works out to be you know so the mid 90s back to 1974 you know 30 years uh i i literally spent the next 45 minutes pacing oh, around my house gosh. like a caged animal oh, i mean my. you know uh so 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 there's this this so a bunch of things are all colliding together okay mm. so we have yeah. the Kolchak the night stalker yeah. we have the x-files you know, so we have pop culture, we have popular culture sort of playing a role in yes. my direct experience. That, That's that, right. That event of these two, in, these two divergent experiences mm. in my memory slamming together are, are linked to what on some level is kind of silly made-for-TV pop culture. Now, yes. what has since happened is I have had so many synchronicities associated with that event in 1974 that I am now forced to conclude that, th- that th- I am correct when I say the orange flash and the missing time took place on the same night. Um, yeah. I, I wouldn't have been able to say that unless it was for these synchronicities, and I will include one of them being this that 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 uh, caged animal feeling I got mm-hmm. when Chris Carter spoke that. Um, yeah. So okay, I didn't mean to to so, you know. No, no, I, I that it's very important because good lord, although this is a fun show for us, and it's something that we've discussed doing for several years now, being the film maniac geeks that we are, as well as being deeply involved obviously, in in serious UFO studies and the implications of this incredibly important subject. Um, For me, this is the most special and the most valuable and the most human kinds of things that, if you're lucky, come out of two people having a conversation um, around a topic and triggering something that they hadn't planned on. Um, Again, I remember sitting with Helen watching that pilot episode of the X-Files and, you know, Dana Scully goes down into the basement and here's, you know, Fox Mulder, great names, great names, and his now legendary poster of I Want to Believe. And even then, talking to Helen about that, what an interesting choice of words rather than I do believe or I don't believe or I think this about believers. I want to believe. And here's a man struggling with an obsession that caused him to lose his sister. And I thought back to that day in February of you know the mid-70s when Helen first told me about her experience. And I had a career. I I was a young up-and-coming New York painter. Being an artist was all I had wanted to do since I had an understanding of adults having careers and that you could make stuff and, you know, paintings and drawings and things and grown-ups bought them. Whoa, that was for me. I was very precocious as a kid and very gifted young artist. I was so... I I was following my dream. And something happened that totally derailed it. You know what? I resented the hell out of it. And to a degree, I still do. I don't kid myself. um, And I don't believe in false modesty any more than false praise. 
I'm good at what I do and I'm proud of the contributions I've made to this field. But, you know, I look back and I think about how things might have gone if Helen and I hadn't had that sighting when we were kids and it hadn't have upset me so and I hadn't shut it down. And then the memory coming up almost 15 years later and talking with her about it and then her telling me what I would now describe as such an archetypical series of abduction-related memories that I've heard it several hundred times in almost the same words from different people. But at the time, it was the most upsetting thing anybody that I loved could have ever told me. And at that moment, my life changed and went off in a different direction. And so watching that first episode of a show that went on to become a worldwide cultural phenomena and one of probably one of the most popular and biggest earning television series in history, I bet, um, that first episode touched very close to home for me and my sister in the same way the Kolchak, the Night Stalker, dovetails into a classic 90-minute abduction, missing time experience. So I'm so glad that we found our way to this point in our dialogue here. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's um, you know, when, one of the things that, uh, so just that pilot episode, there's a scene where there's a young girl who has these abduction experiences and Dana Scully with her very, she's she was she would play that role with that sort of thoughtful, slow speech and she would, yes. she just would, so intense the way she, so she's sitting there Struggling in her Struggling to remain objective. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So she's talking to the witness. And they're in a little uh, restaurant or something like that. And all of a sudden, mm. the witness's nose starts to bleed. Mm. Um, and so the nosebleed thing is something that, that uh, you can, like, I'm, that is something that is ever present in the abduction lore. Yep. Carter and his writers did their homework repeatedly. I remember my sister's famous no- nosebleeds when we were kids. And I um, had, uh, it was not uncommon for me to wake up with probably between the ages of about 10 to 13. I'm just guessing. I don't have a good knock. Same damn time frame as my sister. Uh, Okay, so I would wake up and I would look at the pillow. I don't know how many times this happened. Yeah. And I would think, how the hell did I bleed so much without waking up? I mean, the pillow would be soaked with blood. You're triggering memories for me. Okay, so this is something I've actually never written about or spoken about much, um, though... uh, Yes, and I, I mean, that was interesting because there was a bedroom upstairs. When my brother went to college, I moved into his bedroom. So this all this memory is, is focused in that one bedroom in the corner of the house where I would have been at about, yes, so I would have, I can, I can, at about 12. Yes, so at 12, I would have moved to the downstairs basement. So I can definitely pinpoint it before 12. Um, that this, that the occasions when I would wake up thinking, how did I sleep through this? Because there was so much blood on the pillow, I would have had to have woken up. Um, I also, through those ages, through about my teenage years, um, was very, very common for me to have nosebleeds up until about 19. Uh, then it all ended, and I, I don't, I've probably had like two nosebleeds in the last 30 years. I think I could say the same uh, about my sister for the rest of her life. And one of my most profound childhood memories, and something I've certainly spoken about different times uh, over the years, is being woken up in the middle of one night in my bedroom in Rockville Center, Long Island, completely non-standard. Uh, the hallway light is on. Uh, I hear people moving around. 
you know, get up, rub your eyes, you're in your pajamas, walk into the hallway, and either mom or dad walks by me, he's very straight-faced, and the light is on in Helen and Anne's room. My sisters shared a room uh, five years apart in age. Helen was about 12, so Anne would have been about four. I don't remember whether Anne was up or sleeping, but Helen was up and sitting up in bed, and she looked particularly pale and also straight-faced, and her... I... I looked at her pillow. It was bright red for a good portion of it. And what transpired, fairly lively fashion, was I think my mom had a second cousin who was an ear, nose, and throat guy out in Garden City or thereabouts in Nassau County on Long Island. And um, Helen um, went out. I think one. I think my dad stayed home with Anne, and uh, I tagged along and sat in the waiting room. And Helen's memories were very clear of um, the doctor looking up her nose. And um, Helen had asthma and hay fever and had sneezing fits. And she had a very clear memory of waking up, sneezing, 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 always a box of tissues by the bed. And then at a certain point, looking into the clinics, and there among the mucus was this little round thing she described about the size of a BB but kind of with a calcification on the outside, sort of like, um, you know, a poor person's pearl or something, just something built up on it. And, of course, my first question when we started to discuss this was, what do you do with it? And she said, are you kidding? It was disgusting. I threw it away. And she had sneezed out an implant. And, of course, for some casual listener, that sounds like I'm deluded, but we know it happens. Oh, they're just... The people who arrive at this podcast are not casual listeners. Just, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, if some poor soul stumbles on this thinking it's going to be just a film show, sorry about that. And um, she had sneezed it out, and he asked her, and I've had other people tell me the same thing. You know, little girl, um, did you stick a pencil up your nose? Not that you could get a pencil up up there, uh, because, of course, this was an anathema to him. There was no way he was going to understand what had happened any more than my little sister understood what happened. But once again, that memory never happened again, never happened before like that. But in that period of time, 10 years to 13 or so, right into the, that point of change in her uh, life, um, yeah, that history of nosebleeds was just part of who Helen was. Yeah, I swam competitively in the swim team, and, and it was very normal for me to get nosebleeds while I was swimming. And I, whether that was, you know, I mean, you know, spontaneous let's no- make it very clear here that there are lots of reasons people get nosebleeds, abductees, experiencers, and otherwise. And we're not saying this is the definitive, but it is part of a pattern and a rather complex pattern and a very detailed one of people who have histories of these kinds of experiences in their lives. And and uh, yes, yeah, so 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 we've been going at it for about two hours here. I, mm. I we can wind this down here, but I, I it seems you know what I'd like to do, Mike. Sure. I'd like to come back and do a follow up show. You know that we've got a list of films that we can continue to move through that we both um, they're that are special. Oh yeah, we're not going to run out of topics. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I'd like to wind down and come back and do another show. Um, you know, um, great. I was great. next this year. Is... I was a few weeks away. Um, but this has been such a pleasure doing this with you, and more important, it's been a value, not just to you and me, but I hope um, to your listeners and my listeners, this is important stuff. And the fact is, it's just a gentle tap on the shoulder to remind us that 
pop culture, um, whether it's filmatic or otherwise, if it if it resonates, you know, at the right frequency or um, the homework is good enough, it doesn't have to be some multi-million dollar project to not just entertain, but to be thought-provoking and sometimes even educational or to underscore some very disturbing things that most folks um, think are science fiction but are anything but. Yes, uh there was a movie made in 1974, mm-hmm. so that's the same year again, of the Kolshak the Night Stalker and my yeah. same time thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a made-for-TV movie with Barbara Eden. Uh, I she was Jeannie, very... Yeah. yeah called well, let's also remind people that the great Davin McGavin, uh, McGavin um, it, whether or not you've ever heard of Kolchak, he did become world famous as the father, the curmudgeon father in the wonderful film... The Christmas Story. Yes, yes, and uh, but yes, and he also was in a in a very interesting movie, which which we may not have time. Which, let's not get into it here. Called Hangar Eighteen from nineteen eighty, which is oh yeah, well, which is we'll very get, resonant. Add that to our list for the next show. Yeah. So I just want to. I'm not going to talk about this movie, The Stranger Within, uh, made for TV movie. It's a little bit under an hour and a half long. Um, it was the Tuesday movie of the week. Uh, it, it involved a woman. It was very slickly done. I mean, slickly is the wrong term. It was very. It was. It was. It was a very impressive bit of storytelling, where this woman slowly realizes that she's pregnant. There's no way she can be pregnant. Her husband has had a, a vasectomy, um, and so there's all kinds of sexual tension and sort of uh, marital tension there in the house when you know she says that she's pregnant and he knows he can't be the father. Uh, little by little, we learn through the set of odd experiences that this is a. a potentially an alien hybrid child. This took place in 1974. Yeah. Uh, I did, you know, I didn't, whatever. I, I did some research on it. And, and uh, the, the introduction of the, of, the, of the alien hybrid child didn't really show up until um, Bud's book, Intruders, if I'm That's not mistaken. Right. I think that was the very first. Yeah. So we're back to intruders. So, that's right. so that's um, 1974 to 1987 is uh, 13 years. So 13 years later. So th- this predated it by 13 years. What I realized is that Richard Matheson, who I mentioned earlier, who wrote the very mm-hmm. first uh, s- screenplay for the um, uh, Kolshak the Night Stalker, yes. had uh, written a story, <laughs> a short story in 1953 called Trespass. Yes. Uh, I got the short story. I read it. It's it's a zippy bit of uh, snappy dialogue, uh, short little uh, story. It, it is essentially exactly the same as the movie. Yeah. Uh, I was sort of struck by like how accurate, in the sense that uh, you know what is showing up in the UFO abduction literature and reporting. Yes. This funny little movie that actually traces back to a kind of almost dismissible little short story from 1953, how accurate it was. I wrote an essay uh, mm. on this subject, uh, comparing and contrasting. I was kind of, uh, whatever, it was, it's a little, uh, there's a term called synchromysticism that sort of the young <laughs> teenagers are using when you, when you, when you are a little, when you sort of start making connections through little synchronicities and stuff. And with Google, you can actually make them pretty fast and furious. But I ended up making writing a 32-page essay about the connection with this 
short story and movie and the real-life phenomena. In essence, the story that Richard Matheson wrote in 1953, there was no conceivable, understandable way that he could have included all the plot points that have since played out in the research. What I was sort of forced to conclude in the essay um, is that there is something at play within the subconscious. There is something that wants to emerge. I also realized when looking at his his output, uh, Richard Matheson was writing a lot of short stories, science fiction short stories in in, mm. in that year of 1953. Yeah. Um, and so there's something inherent in creativity that can bring forth these these. Uh, themes, these ideas that can be predictive in some mystical way. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of people who, who will make analogies between uh, these science fiction movies and and the implication is that there's a, there's a, a creepy bunch of bureaucrats uh, <laughs> that are sitting around in Hollywood around the conference right. table and they are leading the scriptwriters. Right. It's part of the education of the people and it's a program that's going on. Eh. And so, yes, so. so there are a lot of people and there may – I'm certain there is some evidence of that. I, I would actually point mm. to that movie Hangar 18 as one of the things Well, there I, are – yeah, there are – projects which which do have a sense of uh, being assisted there's no question about yeah, that th- yeah so but but as a program that influences all science fiction movies or you know run by some secret office uh, under virginia or something i think not yes so anyway so the the thing in a way is more interesting to me is that this stuff it doesn't seep in through the hands of you know the cabal no. uh, it seeps in from our own collective unconscious well, I will add one thought to that, and I couldn't agree with you more, Mike. I, I think that's very perceptive and on the money. There's also the wild card of the very real possibility that there are individuals who happen to have become successful screenwriters and authors who had experiences, acknowledged, unacknowledged, conscious, half-conscious, and as part of their addressing their experiences in a culture where you couldn't say out yourself as a UFO experiencer, um, they chose to write about it. And that certain accurate gems or foreshadowings of things that we now understand from serious study are part of patterns uh, of these uh, experiences may have been originally written by people who had had experiences. Yes, and I can think of some examples. I'm not really at liberty to say, yes. <laughs> but, but I can certainly I, think I of some. I was just about to use the same phrase. Interesting. Yes, so I can think of some examples. We can <laughs> maybe we'll. I don't want to get whatever. Very few things are are uh, whatever. If someone wants to be private about these things yeah. in their life, they I, like. I am not the guy to to um, to you know. I will to add their... um, with tremendous respect to this thought. And I thought, I thought, as we were talking about Intruders, the miniseries, of injecting this interesting detail. And what I will say is that someone, someone associated with this production, and I'm not going to say whether it was a writer, a producer, an actor, um, a technical person, what have you, made it known to Bud and I, after breaking down in his studio, um, 
that they had had these experiences. And uh, one of the reasons they were drawn to the project was because it mirrored things that had happened to them. I'd also like to add, and I, I think this is just this is a coincidence. Um, we've talked before about the interesting fact that among the millions and millions of, of great fans of good science fiction and bad science fiction, but science fiction is a worldwide interest, there is almost a total disconnect from an interest in serious UFO studies, one that very much mirrors the greater public at large's lack of interest in something that should be so compelling to everyone. Uh, the basic thought being that they, you know, um, um, accept the ridicule factor and that if these things were real, we'd know about it and you guys are a bit deluded or you're mystical or you're lonely. We are unabashed science fiction fans, however, and that is very cool stuff, whether it's Arthur C. Clarke or Star Trek or, you know, name your poison. And as a result, in all of my years, I've never been invited even remotely to participate in any event or conference or, um, you know, consulting project involving science fiction per se. That changed last month. Ooh, ooh, when, we're repeating ourselves. You, you, you told this right at the very beginning. Oh, I didn't realize that you're going to be using that. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I've got, well, I'll use it all. Yeah, that used to sound a okay, great Okay, so. well, then, then crank the tape back and um, just drop out what I was about to say. Good. I'm glad that's done. Good. What I will add is... I mentioned at the beginning that I was going to have the honor of being on a panel discussion at the Philip K. Dick um, Film Festival coming up uh, at venues uh, in Manhattan and Williamsburg, Brooklyn, this coming weekend, because the show that we're recording today on the 30th of November will be broadcast in a few days, the first week of December. And on the 8th of December at a uh, wonderful screening venue in Williamsburg, um, our friend James Carmen's terrific UFO uh, documentary, The Hidden Hand, is going to be screened. And James and I and the producer and, and some science fiction writers and the like are going to take part in what for me is a completely new experience of being on a uh, panel uh, relative to serious UFO studies and UFOs and science fiction. And I encourage anybody, any friend, uh, any listener who lives, you know, remotely within the greater New York area who can join us and by all means consider going to the film festival. Um, Philip K. Dick, as many of your listeners know, is one of America's greatest all-time um, uh, science fiction writers. And it's a film festival because enough of his um, wonderful books were made into terrific films, including um, Total Recall and... Um, um, Oh, there's so many. Yeah, I mean, there's. Uh, here we can we can edit our our mumbling yes, out here. Please, I think we're because we're, no, all, uh, we're all we're <laughs> we've been I, at it for like two hours no, and fifteen we, minutes. Got it. This one that's just embarrassing. Um, um, I want oh, to do, uh, scanner darkly, the one that was uh, done by Linkletter that had the the, the rotoscoped yes. animation. Um, Blade Runner. No, Blade Runner was not. Fil oh, yes, that's right. It was. I was yes. yes, that's uh, do Android's dream of electric sheep. Exactly, Blade Runner. Yes. So so um, so, so here again, I'm going to just uh, okay. Uh, Blade Runner was uh, Mac Tony's one of Mac Tony's uh, favorite movies, and he referenced um, Valis and Philip K. Dick all the time. Yes. Uh, and 
Mac Tonys is one of the rare characters who did jump back and forth between, uh, yeah. you know, researching the the paranormal and the UFO subject as well as writing science fiction short yeah, stories. And, well, he lost him much too young. Yeah, thirty years. Uh, for any of you that can possibly join us, certainly on the Saturday or for the festival, and I'm sure it's going to be a great event, or just want to know more about it, visit their website at info at the Philip K. Dick filmfestival.com great and i will um i actually have a friend in new york who i am quite certain will be attending that so i will i'll make please yeah, so if, you, have if you meet if you shake somebody's hand named bruce uh, he's a buddy huh. of mine okay now oh so so before we go i just have a couple questions to ask yeah. this one of them goes back to the to the um richard matheson uh story uh now i am not a researcher in the sense that i don't i'm not playing this role as a scientist i'm not playing this role as an academician i am uh in essence playing the role as a creative type as an artist where i don't have any like i haven't been keeping a spreadsheet and and <laughs> documenting this stuff but i as do an artist who has had experiences yes and and so that what i'm sharing right now is anecdotal mm. uh and i have spoken to a lot of women who have had these you know what would be categorized as abduction experiences and i feel i don't i can't say this exactly but i feel that anecdotally the number would be around 100% of these women have shared stories that would fall into um where they have memories of handling tiny babies mm. or they have memories of being pregnant and and odd occurrences surrounding the pregnancy of course is that what i what number would you use as far as a percentage i don't know i don't know i think 100 um, percent is 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 wrong yeah um, I, I think that's high <laughs> but uh this I, is some... i've met and spoken with also more important in a way is i have actually in a handful of cases obviously with the blessings of the individuals involved and obviously the medical personnel involved seen the medical records of disappeared pregnancies. Ooh, okay. We are the, not talking about, you know, um, um, hysterical some spontaneous women, yeah. uh, loss of a, a fetus or what have you. Okay, I want you to repeat that again because because this is something that comes up because I have not. I've spoken to some women and they say, oh, it mm. took place at this hospital and my records are in place. I've spoken to other women who tell the terribly sad story yeah. of being pregnant, going to the gynecologist, pregnancy is confirmed. Yeah. Later, and going, back, going to, back, and then having the gynecologist, you know, this in this in this case, it was a man, uh, yes. basically yell at the woman and That's shoo right. her out for for having an abortion, you know, the and not um, yes. basically implying that it was an illegal abortion somehow, and that he was not included in the decision, and and uh, yes, so mm -hmm. I've heard that, and that but was dealt really with chilling. Some of those also the. In one case, an obstetrician who really did have a sense that this extraordinarily impossible allegation might be true and um, became so upset about the possibility that he refused to ever see the woman again. Um, I would refer you, um, you know, sometime you might want to have a... Um, uh, as a guest, one of the dearest people I know and one of the most courageous and one of the most remarkable and one of the most down-to-earth 
um, Debbie Jordan Cavill, who um, still lives in Indiana, uh, the subject of Bud Hopkins Intruders, who has her own radio show, by the way. But you and her, I know, would be great friends. I, I think you could also do a great job interviewing each other on your respective shows. And if you'd like, um, I'd be glad to cut that introduction or friend her, you know, from my Facebook page. Um, Debbie's the best, and she certainly went through a, a variation of this experience in no uncertain terms and had the courage to give Bud permission to make the facts surrounding it um, public. Yes, and, and I will say that one of the things that I did is I read um, Intruders, mm. And then shortly thereafter, I found a, a little, you know, mass market paperback written by Debbie, called Abducted, and it was in Kathy essence Davis. Um, yeah, yeah, it was basically the same yeah. story. Yep, but from their point from of their view. point of view, and I found that fascinating. Yeah, because what happened is you could sense the role of Bud yes, trying could. to quantify things and trying yeah. to look at it pragmatically, and you could sense her direct experience trying to. Yep. Unload and quantify things emotionally, and I found that those two books back to back, I just would consider you can't read one without reading. I recommend that um, uh, tremendously. There have been a number of well-meaning but less than impacting efforts by experiencers, abductees, to tell their own stories. Uh, But there is a handful of terrific books in the literature written by the people who it happened to, and in this case, where you have an opportunity to read a book by Bud Hopkins, and then the bookend book by um, the main character in that book and her sister, that's an extraordinary reading experience, and I I can't recommend either book more highly. Yes, and what they do is they tap into some of the things that that are kind of... um shunned by mainstream researchers. Mm -hmm. You know, they they talked about... uh, I can't remember. They they would uh, write down on a piece of paper before they went to bed at night, um, you know, what they like a question about the phenomena. They would go to bed, they would wake up the next morning, and then they would basically go through sort of a channeled automatic writing of what the answer would be. So, so, uh, and if I remember correctly, that was not included in Bud's book. Bud may not have even known about it, but. I think you're right there. Um, the fact is, again, no matter how much we now know about this phenomena, it's probably the tip of the iceberg relative to what we don't know. I sometimes think, of things um, that trigger for me a sense of, I don't know, it's a word beyond awe of what a bug I am in the universe of understanding this, or all of us are. And it was something Dr. David Jacobs said to me years ago, and it brought the whole thing home yet once again from a different point of view. I'm in the work now. I'm privy to working with folks who've had experiences. I'm Bud's assistant I'm doing a lot of reading, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he said it almost casually. He said, I want you to remember that somewhere out there on some faraway planet or planetoid or moon or something, there's a factory. And what they make are tables to examine human beings that are installed in these machines that come and go that we call UFOs. And then he went on to something else. But you know what? I, the penny in my fuse box absolutely went pop. And to this day, that moment, that sentence brings it all home. There 
is there probably you know there are factories that make components like there are for cars but to think that's the case and those tables there's a very specific thing about them and every description of one that is authentic always has this detail uh and it's a very simple thing but there is a factory out there that makes them and they're installed by robots like in our auto factories and things or what have you on these much more sophisticated machines filled with hundreds of thousands of components or who knows what i don't know or or one organic i was going to say know, right. one organic blob of like right. you know Made of, 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 of a, cells or yeah exactly uh, of some sort of consciousness or, component that's yeah that's right that's right consciousness drive whatever you want to call it but yeah they make tables um and there's a factory somewhere so yeah yeah uh, so so here's the, the so i uh like if someone had six years ago if someone had told me uh oh you're going to be doing these audio interviews you're going to post them online you're going to be using your real name you're going to talk about your experiences <laughs> i no, would I, have like i, I would have said so. what, what experiences it it quite honestly wasn't until yeah. the winter of 2006 2007 that i started looking into these experiences and um, I remember us meeting in New York shortly after when you came to visit Bud for the first exactly, time. Exactly, yes. And we and it would have been that would have been in two thousand seven. That's right. And it would have been in uh I can't remember what time of the year, but that was definitely two thousand seven. So mm. what happened uh visiting Bud uh looking I mean basically aggressively addressing these things. I've I've mm. said this before, like I could tell a handful of stories. I could tell that missing time story. I I got a story of seeing five gray aliens out my window mm. uh that I can tell. I could tell that in such an offhand kind of dismissive way, kind of like a golly aw shucks thing. You know, I could sit around the campfire and say, Oh, here's something that happened to me and just kind of slap my leg and like, huh, what a, I can't imagine what that means. But um the act of looking into it, um, my life is no longer the same. Uh, I, it has changed. Uh, I know you and I have talked about this a little bit that, that there, there, it is very difficult to balance this in the conscious mind. It's almost one of those things where you can only hold it in your reality for like a, a, a moment and then it just flitters away. And the, the thing that is challenging to hold in your reality is that this is a real phenomenon. Mm. Um, you know, it's so easy to just, you know, do the research and, and 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 kind of like you know put these little puzzle pieces together but but that you ha- like stepping back and saying this is a real mm-hmm. phenomenon is i don't i i think that is something that maybe you know like I, I, for me personally i can only get a glimpse of it and then it just flitters away or like i can only hold it in my mind momentarily it's too big um for me the way i'd say it is several times a year um I'm, I'm speaking with somebody or um, somebody is relating something to me about an experience that they've had or or something has come up. I literally have a visceral reaction and a voice says, my God, this is really happening to people. This is really happening. It is not some combination of psychological aberrations and an overactive imagination combined with sleep paralysis or this or this or this. This is really happening. It has happened to people you know, you love, your friends. 
people who have confided things to you that only you know about them and maybe a few other people and that it is the core of their secret life or they've had the courage to come forward and they are now doing their best to educate others to it or something in the middle, this is really happening. It is not a pleasant experience, but I hope I never grow so lackadaisical or objective or dispassionate about this subject and my role in researching, investigating, educating, appreciating how real it is. If I do, I will lose something very important. Um, This is really happening, and you know it better than most people, Mike as do probably a higher percentage of your listeners than of some more generic talk show on the Internet. Yeah, so let's wind this down here. I'm just going to – this will be my final little thing here. The reason I am doing this show, I'm not sure – you know, and my my online blog thing, the reason I'm – doing this part of it is absolute complete compulsion it is it is a sense of mission that i have a hard time wrapping my mind around so it is it is coming from an almost unhealthy obsession <laughs> to do this to the club. yes this is and not I, the smartest career move in no, the world keep your day job folks <laughs> so in in saying that what has happened to me, and I've shared this story a little bit. I'll share it again. Um, last year at a conference, uh, oh, you actually may have even met this person. This would have been last year at uh, the conference in in uh, Scottsdale uh, mm-hmm. in February. Um, I was talking with, I was actually talking with Barbara Lamb, mm-hmm. and this woman was saw me, read my name tag, and she was standing with her husband, and she went. <gasps> she kind of pointed to me and then she whispered something in her husband's ear and I noticed it, you know, I mean, so it was obviously she was kind of, you know, her, and I made, you know, so I, right afterwards I went up and talked to her and, um, she basically said, thank you so much for doing what you're doing. Aww. And the framework that, that these shows are and my writing and these shows and the sort of weird attempt at gushing honesty that I've been doing, uh, is based on, the fact that I recognized in that moment that that I am doing something very valuable for what might be a small little percentage of people. I'm doing something that, because I've gotten similar emails from people, I've gotten feedback from people that basically says, thank you for doing what you're doing. And, yes. and, I, and I'm framing this these conversations in a way whatever like i'm not a journalist like i'm not a talk show host i'm not i'm not even sure what a podcaster means but i'm doing this from a uh recognizing that there are questions that that we're not going to be able to answer i don't even try to answer them but simply exploring these issues and i will say this this is the only word i can use in a heartfelt way mm. uh had an impact on that woman actually i i so, you know, whatever that conference is almost a week long, you know, uh, at one point I bumped into the husband in the hallway and he kind of took me mm-hmm. aside and said, yeah. he basically said, you know, she's, she really pays, she's grateful to what you've done. So, yes. um, so that means a lot to me. So, yeah, so I'll leave it at that. So we talked about silly pop culture movies with, uh, with little rotoscoped uh, stop motion animation, yeah. flying saucers bumping into the, you know, Washington buildings. But at the same time, there is uh, a real set of events happening to real people. Well, you're not only right, Mike, but um, 
I thank you too from the heart what you are doing you don't see it as courageous but a lot of us do see it as courageous and as far as obsession goes um, I can relate to that for most of my life now um, I mean on a certain level whether it's philosophic or whatever I, I am following a course that I have chosen there's no question about that but I would have rather not but the fact is this subject changes people in a profound way if it has touched you and whether or not it becomes um, a covert agenda, something you push into your unconsciousness, something that you have the courage to bring forward. Um, we're all in it together. And I think in a way having in the same program, beginning with something that we've been looking forward to doing for fun um, I think it's also terribly important, even more so for people who have been through events that have been life-changing, many of them in very positive ways um, or traumatic, and both, of course, uh, are encompassed in the UFO phenomenon, no question about that. It's important to remember to not let yourself get so caught up in the seriousness and the implications and the urgency and the isolation or what have you that you neglect the small and the large joys of life and you know here we are um, talking about two very dissonant subjects one very much in the real world one very much from the human imagination and how they dovetail and how life is a mix it's one of the reasons, again, why um, I so value your friendship. So I'll just close by saying looking forward to picking up where we left off in our filmatic analysis and whatever it leads to in our next show uh, sometime, hopefully in the next couple of months. Great. I look forward to it. Hey, this was Chris. We cranked it out for two hours and 40 minutes. Wow. Um, yeah, that was zipped by. Um, and uh, I will keep you posted. Enjoy. I would love to be at the sitting in the theater in yeah. the dark watching a bunch of movies that I um so enjoy the Philip K Dick Film Festival. Thanks brother. And I will um and I thanks for thanks for all the time. This was this was a ton of fun. I mean, you know, I like to appear uh, uh selfless, but I'm just in it for the money. Yeah, you and me both, brother. Good deal. Okay. Bye <laughs> okay, now. Okay. Bye Mike. Thanks. My pleasure. <laughs>